finally time. Sorry about the delay. That's just the way it goes sometimes. Um, but we are going to be addressing the topic, Is God the Author of Sin? Uh, this is a serious topic, and so I have scripted this entire episode, uh, and I hope that my reading of the script won't be too boring. Um, I thought that scripting an episode would be easier than doing my usual responses and ramblings, but it's actually much, much harder. When you're doing responses, the person you're responding to is leading you along, and you're just responding to points, 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 points. In this, you want to make sure everything's in the right order, and uh, you get all the information in there. I did a lot more scriptural referencing in this episode than usual, and so uh, it's going to be a quite an exhaustive episode. As you can imagine, a topic such as God being the author of sin is going to involve um, showing God's exhaustive control over all sorts of things, all categories of creation, and so that is why this episode has ended up being an exhaustive scriptural demonstration of uh, God's control over all categories of creation, and that's why it ended up being so long. Um, but hopefully you guys will find it beneficial, and once again I have scripted it, and so I will launch into reading it at this point. So to get started, we obviously need to define our terms. What does it mean for God to be the author of sin? A lot of people throw the term out there without defining it, and so it has a tendency to spark different things in people's minds. The phrase is notably found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, which says that God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. My claim that different people assume different things into the phrase author of sin is proven by the fact that I've heard many try to suggest that what the Westminster Confession says here is a contradiction. How can it say that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, which would include evil, and then immediately say that God is not the author of evil? This must be a contradiction. Well, this is just a case of imposing a particular definition of a phrase onto a document that is not using the phrase in that way to begin with. Well, over a hundred people were involved in the writing of the Westminster Confession, and I think we need to give them a little more credit than to say that they are directly contradicting themselves within two sentences. The Confession makes it clear that at the time of its writing, the phrase author of sin had a particular meaning and usage focused mainly on the idea that God would be forcing people to sin. As it immediately says, violence is not offered to the will of creatures, nor is liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. This is simply saying that God does not force people to sin, nor is he manifest in creation directly causing people to sin. All Calvinists would agree with this, and I will be addressing the causation of God quite ex exhaustively in just a minute. But back to the point of definitions. When you ask, is God the author of sin, it just depends what you mean. It's really that simple. If you mean God has planned and purposed and determined the occurrence of sin, then the answer is yes, God is the author of sin. If you mean, does God force people to sin, then obviously the answer is no, just as the Westminster Confession itself denies. Now, I think that these days the whole God forces people to sin argument has been beaten to death, and rightly so. It's probably the worst argument that could ever be raised against the Calvinist. And for that reason, while many Calvinists may disagree with me on this, and want to stay true to the Westminster Confession's denial, I actually have no problem affirming that God is the author of sin. And by that I mean that God has planned, purposed, and determined whatsoever comes to pass, and as I will explain with regards to causation in a moment, that God brings to pass, by his ultimate power, all things, including sin. If any of my fellow Calvinists disagree with me on this, or think that affirming that God is the author of sin will do some sort of harm to Calvinism, please contact me and we can talk about it. I'm happy to change and re-upload this episode if need be. All I ask is that you hear me out first. I think that you will agree with 99% of what I say in this episode. So I think that inerrant in the plain meaning of the words and phrase, author of sin, is the idea of purpose, planning, intention, and authority. We know that the authors of books have the authority to write their story however they see fit, all of it from start to finish. And some of their story might certainly include bad or evil things. But we recognize that if those things are a part of the story, 
They are there for a purpose. Is the author of such a story the author of only the good things in the story? Or is he the author of all the things in that story, including the bad? Obviously, he's the author of all of it. My preference in this debate is to start out by affirming that God is, in fact, the author of sin, and then follow up by asking why this would be a problem in the first place. Rather than saying, let me explain to you why God is not the author of sin, I would rather say, let me explain to you why God being the author of sin isn't a problem to begin with. Now, for people who want to take my affirmation of God being the author of sin and use it to score some quick emotional points, I can't stop them from doing that, and I don't particularly care. I'm far more interested in those who take these issues seriously enough to want to have a biblical and logical discussion about it. So why would God being the quote-unquote author of sin be a problem? In order for it to be a problem, you need more than just an emotional I-don't-like-that reason. For it to be a problem, it would have to contradict something in scripture or posit some sort of logical contradiction in and of itself. A lot of people seem to think that even mentioning God and evil in the same sentence somehow warrants some sort of contradiction. But what I want everyone who listens to this episode to realize is that all Christians need to address God's relationship to sin and evil. All of us do. It's very easy to score emotional points when discussing topics like this. Let's flip this over on the non-Calvinist for a moment. If I were to say, for example, that since the non-Calvinist position has God allowing or permitting the occurrence of sin and evil, which he could easily have stopped, that your side makes God the quote-unquote permitter of evil. You have God in the ultimate position as the permitter of evil. Is this a true statement? Well, in this ultimate context of God's relationship to evil, the answer is yes, it's true. It's true that your position makes God the permitter of evil. But you also recognize that such a phrase could convey the false idea that God is morally approving of sinful actions, or that perhaps God being the permitter of evil means that God gives permission to the evildoer to commit their evil. But would this be a fair representation of your view? Of course not. This is what occurs most commonly with the phrase author of sin. The phrase in the most basic sense of the term simply means that God authors his entire creation from start to finish. He plans, purposes, and determines all things, including the bad things. And yet people attach all sorts of emotional baggage to the phrase which ends up going far beyond the simple meaning of the word author. So going back to your view as a non-Calvinist, which would you prefer? Would you rather deny any and all accusations that your view makes God the permitter of evil and then spend all your time trying to explain to people how in your view God does actually in fact permit evil? Do you want to appear inconsistent just for the sake of denying a phrase? Or would you rather just affirm that in your view God most certainly is the permitter of evil and then explain why that's not a problem in the first place? And in fact, I have to point out that many people throughout history have rejected Christianity as a whole on this very basis because they refuse to accept that God who is good could permit the occurrence of sin and evil in the first place. So I find it interesting that people will reject Calvinism because it quote-unquote makes God the author of sin and we just can't have that, when people have rejected basic Christianity altogether because Christianity makes God the permitter of sin and they just can't have that. Maybe you should stop to realize that if you think your view can have a meaningful understanding of God as the permitter of evil, that maybe, just maybe, there can be a meaningful understanding of God as the author of evil as well. This is my goal in this episode overall. I hope to provide a meaningful understanding of God being the author of sin and how it's not a problem biblically or logically. This overall debate and discussion known as theodicy, or the vindication of the goodness of God in light of the existence of evil, or more commonly referred to as the problem of evil, has been going on for centuries. And in my opinion, Calvinism is the only view that adequately answers the problem. In fact, I would say it answers it in such a way as to show that the existence of evil in a creation by a good God was never a problem in the first place. That doesn't mean I don't think evil is evil, or that evil isn't a problem for us and for creation. But rather in the context of this discussion, 
when we're discussing God's relationship to the occurrence of such evils, there is no problem whatsoever. And my goal in this episode is to cover all the bases and demonstrate why Calvinism provides the only biblically and logically consistent answers in this debate. So let's lay a couple important foundations. The most important thing to understand in this discussion by far is God's metaphysical relationship to his own creation. You cannot properly address God's relationship to sin and evil without understanding this point. And in my opinion, this foundational truth we are about to cover is enough in and of itself to prove the Calvinist position to be correct on all issues regarding God's relationship to sinful actions. Everything else is merely an exposition and logical outflow of this foundational truth. The Bible teaches explicitly that God is not only the creator of all things, but that he also continuously upholds all things by his very power. God not only causes things to come into existence, but he also causes all things to continue in existence. This is the clear teaching of verses like Hebrews 1.3, which say that God created all things and that he upholds the universe by his power. And verses like Colossians 1.17, which say that God not only created all things, but that in him all things have their being. Never forget that these verses are always true, at all moments. This means that when you look out into creation, you see evil occurring. God's power is at work in upholding the things involved in those evils. So how can God, who is holy, righteous, and good, exert his power in upholding evil creatures and evil actions? This is the question that we're going to answer in this episode, and it's a question that these verses force all Christians to ask and answer. And I'd like to point out that this is not something that we should shy away from or try to explain away as if it weren't true, but rather, since it is true, we should seek to properly understand it. Now, another important thing we need to cover when we're talking about whether or not God is the author of sin is what is sin? Properly defining sin. What is sin and what is evil? Seems like such a simple question. And yet it's my claim that a, a proper understanding of what sin is along with a few simple ABCs and 123s is sufficient to completely remove any mystery or tension surrounding the idea of God being the author of sin. Sin is defined most clearly in 1 John 3.4 as lawlessness. We sin when we transgress and violate the commands of God. Terms like sin and evil or rebellion are essentially interchangeable terms. They all refer to the act of disobedience to the law of God. What follows from this simple recognition, however, are some very important points relevant to this discussion. First, it follows that evil is therefore not something with ontological existence like matter or energy. Evil is not a quote-unquote thing in that sense. Instead, it is a description of the actions of the creatures of God. We are not evil because a part of us, whether physical or spiritual, has become ontologically tainted or corrupted. Words like that are certainly used in the scriptures to describe a creature's spiritual state or state of mind but it's not referring to the ontological existence of the things that make up that creature. We are evil when our thoughts and our actions are not in accordance with the perfect law of God. Our minds, thoughts, and actions can be said to be quote-unquote corrupted because of the way in which they are functioning, not because they are somehow ontologically corrupted or evil. And with the debate over original sin being saved for another day, I simply point out that this is why a Calvinist has no problem saying that the good, holy, and righteous God can create people as fallen sinners, with fallen natures, natures not operating in accordance with the laws of God, and have no logical problem whatsoever, because the things that God creates are not ontologically evil. Remember, God created all those things that make us who and what we are, including our minds, thoughts, and emotions, and he by his very power upholds them at all moments. The good, holy, and righteous creator and sustainer does not need to be quote-unquote metaphysically hands-off of those things, even when they are operating or functioning in bad or evil ways. In fact, to double down on this truth, I simply point out that those bad or evil functionings of things in creation could not even be functioning in those bad or evil ways unless God himself was exerting the power so that they could. It's very ironic that most Christians seek to metaphysically distance and disconnect God from sin and evil when those things can't even be occurring apart from his power in the first place. 
So when we take the proper definition and understanding of sin and evil and square that with our affirmation that God is the creator and sustainer of all things, you should begin to see why God being the author of sin is not a problem at all. There are several other points that flow perfectly and consistently from this. Let's not forget that Christians reject dualism. Dualism being the idea that good and evil are some sort of ultimate counterparts which are doing battle. No Christian should be believing this. No Christian should view God's relationship to evil as being one of quote-unquote ultimate battle, as if we should be happy and thankful that God just happens to be more powerful than all those evil things, because if he wasn't, we'd be in a lot of trouble. No, instead we should understand that evil is always under the complete power and control of God. It is not an ultimate power alongside God's. I wish that more Christians would stop to fully consider the logical implications of rejecting a dualistic view. God is eternal, and God is good. Therefore, there is no eternally bad counterpart to God. Before creation existed, only God existed, and God is good. Therefore, evil has not always existed. And we've already defined what we mean by evil quote-unquote existing. We mean the occurrence of things in creation which are in violations of the law of God. Therefore, there is actually no such thing as ontological evil. If we reject dualism, then we affirm this fact. There is no such thing as ontological evil. There is, however, such a thing as ontological good, because God is good, and the things that God created are good. Let's take Satan as an example to prove our point here. First, it was good for God to create Satan. And the spiritual matter or energy that makes up Satan is also good, because it was created by God. And even after the fall of Satan, God's power is still at work in sustaining the existence of Satan. This means that if we were to remove God from the picture, it is not as though the evil Satan would still exist. Evil is an aspect of creation and can only exist if creation exists. And creation can only exist if God exists to create and sustain it. If you remove God from the picture, everything else, including the evil Satan, is removed as well. This point is far more critical than most people realize. Everyone wants to affirm that nothing can exist apart from God, and yet most people constantly talk about sin and evil as if God's power has nothing to do with their existence or occurrence. But if God's power has nothing to do with their existence or occurrence, then you are denying the very statement you claim to affirm, which is that nothing can exist or occur apart from God. All Christians must recognize this fact of reality, and this means that any view which attempts to metaphysically disconnect God entirely from the existence of something in creation, even something evil like Satan, is an unbiblical view. So this speaks directly to the why question. Why does evil exist or occur ultimately? If we remain consistent with what we've already laid out, some critical points follow. First, evil can only ultimately exist or occur if God chooses or wills that it exist or occur. God's action to create or sustain are both willful actions on his part. God was not forced to create against his will, but rather freely chose to create. And likewise, God is not forced against his will to sustain the occurrence of things in creation either. He willingly chooses to sustain them. Therefore, when Calvinists like myself say that all things, including sin and evil, occur by the will of God, we are saying nothing more than that God both wills that these things exist by creating them and wills that they continue to exist and occur by sustaining them. To put this point more concisely, if all of creation can only come into existence if God wills it, and all of creation can only continue to exist if God wills it, then sin and evil, which occur in that very creation, can only occur if God wills it. And I pause for a brief moment to point out that I am obviously referring to what God wills to occur in the context of his willful actions to create and sustain. I am not referring to God's will represented in his commands. There is a difference between what God wills to occur and what God commands as right and wrong. There are countless biblical examples of God willing the occurrence of things which are violations of his commands. The murder of Christ, mentioned in Acts, Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery, 
The king of Assyria being sent as judgment against another nation and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart are just a few examples of God willing the occurrence of the violations of his own commands. Even the usage of the word will itself can be demonstrated in both ways in scripture. There is a clear and undeniable difference between a verse like Matthew 7.21 in which Jesus says, He who does the will of my Father will enter into heaven, clearly referring to God's commands, and a verse like Ephesians 1.11 which says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. So let's just remember that the context of God's will in this discussion, this ultimate discussion, is what God wills to occur. Even the non-Calvinists would have to admit that in their view, evil can only ultimately occur if God wills to allow it to occur. But back to the overall point. Since the only things that can exist or occur are the things that God wills to create or sustain, then this includes the occurrence of sin and evil by definition. Now it's obviously blasphemous to suggest that there is something that was created by someone or something other than God. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and Revelation 4.11 all make it clear that God is the creator of everything. And therefore it is just as blasphemous to suggest that something in creation is upheld by a power other than God's. Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.17 make this clear. Now everyone wants to claim to adhere to this clear biblical foundation, and yet I have heard many Christians openly declare things like, we create our choices out of nothing, or that we are the first cause of our thoughts and actions, or that we are our own first mover. When people make these claims, they think they're being pious and somehow protecting God from the stain of evil by metaphysically distancing him from those things. But they are actually blaspheming God in the process because such claims necessitate that there are things that are created or upheld by a power other than God's. If only they would abandon their false assumptions and intuitions and just admit to the cold hard facts I've been putting forth here in this episode, they would realize that God doesn't need their protection. He is the creator and sustainer of all of creation. And if evil occurs, then God has willed that it occur and has a purpose in it occurring. If anyone is to say that the occurrence of evil goes against God's will, then you need to be able to explain how and why God willingly took an action that would absolutely result in such an occurrence. To say that God willingly created or sustained something that he was unwilling to occur is a pure contradiction and makes a mockery out of God. Another important point is that it's not enough to simply say God was not forced to create or sustain, period, as if what resulted from his action to create or sustain was outside of his control. We have to recognize that God was not forced to create or sustain in the ways that he did and or does. God could have easily created in such a way that evil never occurs and that everyone lives happily ever after. It is logically impossible for any Christian to deny this possibility, since it is this very state of existence that we all eagerly await and look forward to for all eternity. Sin and evil will not be possible in our glorified eternal state. And if such a state is possible in the future, then surely it was possible from the start. This brings us back to the why question. If God wasn't forced to create this universe in such a way that evil would occur, why did he? The biblical answer is because he had a purpose in doing so. Every action that God takes has a purpose. In fact, it is logically impossible for God, who is a perfect being, to act without purpose and without intention. Everything that God does, including creating a universe with sin and sustaining a universe with sin, has a purpose. And God having a purpose in the occurrence of evil is clearly established by the simple recognition that God has a purpose and intention in all of his own actions, including creating a universe in which sin would occur and even sustaining the existence of sinners while those sins occur. All of these are actions of God with purpose and intention. Now, Calvinists would say that God's purpose in creating and sustaining a universe with sin is so that, on one side of the coin, he could demonstrate his grace and mercy in the salvation of sinners. On the opposite side of the coin, God can also demonstrate his wrath against sin and the punishment of sinners. In the Calvinist view, sin and evil were part of God's plan A. They were not the result of a failed creation. It is not as though, if God could have things his way, things would be different. Instead, we recognize that if things are a particular way, then God must have a purpose in it being that way.
So we can see an important difference between moral good, which is descriptive of actions, and ontological good. So when we're contrasting good with evil, that contrast only makes sense in the context of moral good and evil, which is defined once again by the law of God. Consider these two simple statements. Everything that God created is good, and it was good for God to create those things. Notice the distinction in the usage of the word good. One addresses the action of God morally and descriptively. It was good for God to create those things, while the other addresses the ontological nature of the things themselves. Everything that God created is good. It's important to stress that God's actions are always good. Everything that God does is good by definition, unlike our actions, which are considered good or bad based upon whether or not they line up with God's law. God's actions can only ever be good to begin with. God's actions are not good because he plays by rules external to himself. God's actions are good because he is the one doing them. When I say that, people often ask, so does that mean that God could sin and it wouldn't be sin? No, actually, God can't sin by definition, since sin, once again, is the breaking of God's law. And while it's true that the laws that God gives us will always be consistent with his nature, this is not the same thing as saying that God is somehow bound by his own law or that he has to play by such rules. In fact, many of God's laws aren't even logically applicable to him to begin with. For example, is God good because he obeys his own law, thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not murder? Well, in case you hadn't noticed, God can't steal in the first place. Everything that is not him was created by him and belongs to him to begin with. And God can't murder because he's the giver of life in the first place, and he can take it away anytime he chooses. It follows then that God is not good because he's being measured by a standard external to him, as is the case with us creatures being good, but rather he is good to begin with. He is the starting point of good. He's the very definition of good. And therefore, whatever law he gives to us, while certainly being a reflection of his good nature, are specific to creation and serve a purpose for creation. It is important to recognize that since God is good, Anything that God does is good by definition. We stand in no position to judge God's actions. We don't get to use emotional false assumptions to determine what God can or cannot do. So when God creates a universe in which sin exists and occurs, it was not merely okay for God to do that as if we need to find excuses for him and justify his actions with unbiblical doctrines like free will. It was actually good for God to do such a thing. It was good for God to create a universe in which sin and evil occur. And there's no law given to God that said, God, thou shalt not do such a thing. And when we zoom into the occurrence of sin and evil itself, we find that God is not standing by as an idle spectator, but rather his power is at work in sustaining the very existence of whatever creatures are committing that sin to begin with. Once again, we do not look for reasons to excuse God from sustaining those sinners while they sin. We boldly declare that God is doing a good thing when he does so. God has good purposes and intentions in all that he does not measured as good because God is playing by some sort of rule, but declared as good by virtue of God being the one who is doing them. When we start with God and his purposes as the definition of what is good, rather than starting with our own emotions and false assumptions, then this goes a long way in understanding why God being the author of evil is not a problem to begin with. This brings us to another important topic along these lines, which is causation. In fact, one of the most common objections to God being the author of sin, even from many Calvinists wishing to deny such, is that God being the author of sin would make him the cause of sin as well, and we just can't have that. Well, it's my goal here to clear up some important matters regarding the idea of God being the cause of sin. After what we've already covered, it should be clear that God caused things to come into existence by creating them, and that God also causes those things to continue in existence in particular ways as he sustains them. God is the cause of both the existence and the continued existence of everything that exists in this universe. Therefore, I have no problem with saying that God is the cause of all things, including the occurrence of sin. 
but it's important to recognize the difference between this unique causation of God over against what we would describe as cause and effect within creation. And I think that this is where a lot of people go wrong. Many people want to describe God's causal relationship to sin as quote-unquote indirect or secondary. And this might be half true, as I'll explain in a moment, when we begin to talk about the way God interacts in time. However, as far as this discussion is concerned, if we are speaking in the context of what we've already laid out in terms of God's ultimate relationship to his creation, I want you to consider two questions. Number one, how could God's first act to create and cause things to come into existence ever be described as indirect? Well, it can't, and I don't think anyone would ever say that it is. God's causation in creation is obviously direct. So if we were to be consistent then, when God causes something to continue to exist in a particular way, then this causation must also be direct. I don't see how anyone could claim that God's power is causing something's continued existence indirectly or secondarily. This would mean that there is another more ultimate and direct power at work in sustaining the existence of that thing. This is unbiblical and impossible. So as we begin to discuss causation, we need to differentiate between the cause and effect relationships we observe within creation, amongst powers and things that are themselves created, and the idea of the ultimate metaphysical causation of God as creator and sustainer of those very things. This is why it is absolutely critical to understand God as transcendent. Now everyone affirms God is transcendent, but in my opinion, a proper understanding of this only comes about with the recognition of the things we've been laying out in terms of God's metaphysical relationship to his creation. When we speak of God's ultimate metaphysical causation, we are speaking of the ultimate causation which gives things their very existence and being. This type of causation is obviously not to be confused with causation we observe within creation as things interact with one another, created things. This is what I often refer to as the difference between the horizontal causation that we observe and experience in time as creation unfolds and the vertical causation of God as the ultimate sustainer of all of those things. God's power underlies and gives existence and functionality to all of the created things and powers that we observe. Many people unfortunately view God's relationship to creation as merely the first cause of all things. They view God as merely setting things in motion or starting a chain of dominoes falling, so to speak, when he created the universe. But the problem with this view is that it seems to place the dominoes, or creation, on an equal level to God as far as causation is concerned. In this view, it's as though God were just another cause alongside of those other causes in creation. This is an extremely erroneous view. God transcends creation. He is the one who gives creation its very existence, not just at the moment of creation, but each and every single moment of the continued existence of that creation. So when we think about the so-called dominoes of creation, God's power not only caused those dominoes to come into existence, but God's power also causes the dominoes to continue to exist and have whatever relationship they have during their existence. Nothing in creation is an ultimate power in and of itself. Even what we would look at and describe as quote-unquote evil powers are described as such because of the way in which they operate, as we've already covered, not because they are inherently ontologically evil, so that God, who is good, can't quote-unquote metaphysically touch them, or in the case of our discussion, uphold them or cause them to function in particular ways. God does not have to be metaphysically hands-off. For example, if we speak of causation and creation in a sort of ABC123 manner, we might observe A causes B causes C causes D, so on and so forth. We can easily understand the horizontal causative relationship between these things. But when we speak of the causative role that God's power plays in all of this, we can see that God is not A, nor is God B or C or D. Nor is God's causative power inserted into the horizontal chain either. God's ultimate power is not just another cause alongside those other things. 
God's power transcends those things and gives them their very existence and relationship. God's power underlies A causing B causing C causing D. God's power not only makes A what it is and makes B what it is, but God's power also causes whatever relationship A and B happen to have as well. Properly understanding God's causation as unique and transcendent is absolutely critical to answering the problem of evil. For example, consider a simple action where I raise my hand. Now, there were all sorts of causes and effects involved in that occurrence. I thought thoughts, I made a choice, brain signals, muscle movement, so on and so forth. But what was God's role in that event? God's causation does not fall into that horizontal line of causes and effects. God is not identified with any of those things, nor is he quote-unquote alongside them in the causal chain. Rather, God is the transcendent sustainer of all those things, by his very power, gives all of those things their very being and whatever relationship those things have to one another as they interact or change in their states of being. Does that mean that I did not play a causal role in the raising of my hand? Of course not. I played precisely the role that God determined for me to play. It's just not the ultimate role. God plays the ultimate role. You should never be viewing yourself as an ultimate power alongside God. It can therefore be said that God is the cause of my being a cause. I am a created cause. And in fact, to go further than that, we can say God is the cause of all created causes. Now that statement would make no logical sense if you're going to try to fit God's causation into the created line of causes. God's causation is not over and against other causes in the way that the causes we experience in creation are. God's causation is the very ground of the existence of the causes that we observe and experience. When we say something like, all things are quote-unquote traceable to God, we don't merely mean horizontally backwards to a first cause. We mean that all things are immediately traceable to God, not horizontally, but vertically, as to their very existence moment by moment. This is how someone like myself can say that God is the cause of all things, including sin, and not have any sort of logical problem whatsoever because the causation I am referring to is vertically of existence, not horizontally within creation. God is not a created cause like we are. God is not the murderer who causes the murder horizontally. The murderer is. God is not the tempter who causes the temptation horizontally. The tempter is. God was not the people who caused their children to be burned to Malek horizontally. Those people were. The list goes on and on to include every instance of evil that you could ever point at. Remember, just because God is not interacting causally within creation when it comes to sinful actions does not mean that God is not outeracting causally as the sustainer of it all. None of these things are ultimately possible apart from the vertical causation of God causing their existence and relationship moment by moment. When God quote-unquote controls or causes sin or evil, he is not creating a new substance or matter or energy when he does so. He is merely controlling what he has already created, all of which is ontologically good. And this briefly addresses a common accusation of the non-Calvinists when they say something like, well, if God's the author of sin, then that would mean he's the source of sin. As I've already pointed out, sin is not an ontological thing that requires a quote-unquote source. God is most certainly the source of the existence of all things as their creator and sustainer. He is even the quote-unquote source of the existence of the things involved in the occurrence of sin and evil. But to say that sin or evil is a thing that requires a source is to commit the error of dualism once again. So what we find is that contrary to the commonly assumed view that God is quote-unquote metaphysically hands-off much of his creation most of the time, especially regarding evil, the Bible actually teaches that God is metaphysically hands-on 100% of the time. This is what Calvinists mean when we talk about God causing things, or God controlling things, or the idea of meticulous divine providence. Logically speaking, it can't be any other way. If something exists, God controls it. It exists in precisely the way God determines to cause its existence every moment of its existence. And the same goes for you and me. You exist, therefore God controls you. 
Something occurred, therefore God willed that it occur. To deny any of this is to deny that God is the sustainer of all things. From him and through him and to him are all things, it says in Romans 11.36. He works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 says. In him all things have their being, as Colossians 1.17 says. And in him we live and move and have our being, says Acts 17.28. When these verses are not understood in light of God being the sustainer of all things at all times, people begin to make limitations based upon unbiblical assumptions like autonomous free will. However, when these verses are understood in light of the foundational truth that God created and sustains all things at all moments, the teaching is clear. Nothing can occur apart from the ultimate power of God, and that includes sin and evil. Nothing you can point at, even the evilest of evils, could have occurred apart from God willingly and purposefully choosing to uphold those evils while they occurred. So why doesn't this make God evil? Why isn't it evil for God to uphold the existence and occurrence of evil by his power? Well, as we've already covered... First and foremost, there is no law for God that says, God, thou shalt not do that. And we also covered that God's intention and purpose in sustaining those evil things always was and is holy, righteous, and good by definition. And this is a fact that all Christians need to recognize. The reason that I stress the concept of God's sustainer so much is that it forces all Christians, not just Calvinists, but all Christians to recognize that you can't separate or disconnect God's will and power from the occurrence of sin and evil. It is biblically and logically impossible to do so. The only way to do so is to ignore what the Bible teaches about God as sustainer, which inevitably results in some form of dualism or deism, no matter how strong or soft of a form. The Bible completely excludes the possibility of such views. And this is perhaps the most important question I could ask the non-Calvinist in this whole debate over God being the author of sin. Let's imagine for a moment that Calvinism doesn't even exist. I want you to consider and answer a critically important question from your own viewpoint. If you admit that nothing, including sin, can occur unless God ultimately sustains it so that it can occur, then I have a simple question for you. Is God doing a good thing when he sustains that evil occurrence? I'm not merely asking you, was it okay for God to do it? I'm not asking you, was God justified in doing it, as if he needs justification for his own actions in the first place? I'm not asking you to find excuses for God's having done it, as if God needs some sort of moral permission from you or anyone else. I'm asking you directly, was God doing a good thing when he upheld that murderer and the victim? Was he doing a good thing when he upheld that child and the abuser? Or to give a biblical example, was God doing a good thing when he upheld the people who burned their children to Melech and upheld the children being burned? Was God's action to sustain those events a good, morally good action? You've only got two options. Either God was not doing a good thing when he upheld those sinful creatures and those sinful actions, or... God was doing a good thing when he did so. Since it's impossible for God to be doing a bad thing, then everyone agrees God must be doing a good thing when he upholds sinners and sinful actions. As soon as you realize that, yes, God's action to sustain a creature's sinful action was a good action on God's part, and yet at the same time does not make the sinful action of the creature not sinful, then not only have you properly understood what the Calvinist is getting at overall, but you've also forfeited any and all objections you could have ever raised against Calvinism in the first place, at least on a logical basis, because you've recognized that God can have good intentions and good purposes and his own determinations to uphold the existence of evil actions in creation. Now I need to point out that even a denial of causal determinism in the horizontal sense does not escape the overall point I'm putting forth in this episode. 
Even if God was not causing the existence of all things in a coherently relational manner, such as causally determinative chain of events, as I have continually put forth in all my episodes, whether you agree with that view or not, you still can't escape God causing the existence of whatever it is that is occurring. Any Christian view must acknowledge God's ultimate causal role in the existence of all things which occur. So, whether or not there is a horizontal causal connection between events, there is always a vertical causal connection between God and the existence of those very events every step along the way. And when it comes to the topic of autonomous libertarian free will, people seem to think that if they could somehow disprove causal determinism within creation as far as human choice is concerned, that they have also simultaneously disproven God's determination and control of human choices as well. I just want to point out that this could not be further from the truth. Let's just imagine for a moment that you could successfully prove a disconnection or a break in the horizontal line of causes and effects, especially regarding what comes prior to you and your thoughts and choices. Now, I don't think this can be proven. Science seems to prove the exact opposite. But let's just imagine that you actually float through this reality in some sort of magical free will bubble that is immune to antecedent causes and conditions, so that you are somehow the quote-unquote first cause of your thoughts and choices. Or as the libertarian free will proponent loves to say, your choice starts with you. That still doesn't prove autonomous free will. All that would prove is that you're the first cause of your choices in the horizontal line of causes within creation. All that would prove is that your choices are not determined by prior causes or conditions within creation, and that your will is quote-unquote free from other things in creation. But this doesn't even begin to address your metaphysical relationship to God and his causation of your existence moment by moment. Proving your will is free from other things in creation does not prove that your will is free from the God who transcends creation. And proving that prior conditions or causes within creation do not determine your choice within creation does not prove that God is not still, ultimately, and transcendently determining your quote-unquote first cause choices when he causes you to exist moment by moment. God would still be the vertical cause of the existence of your horizontal first cause choice, and he would still therefore be the ultimate determiner of your choice, regardless of whether or not something else in creation had a determinative connection to your choice. The only way around this is to say that there are self-sustained things that God has absolutely nothing to do with, but I've already demonstrated this to be logically impossible. Everything that exists was created by God, and everything that continues to exist is sustained by God. You did not cause yourself to come into existence, nor do you cause yourself to continue to exist. So once again, even if, and this is a big if, but even if there were breaks in the horizontal line of causation from time to time, there is never a break in the vertical causation of God to the existence of those things in creation at any time. This is why I stress God is sustainer so much. At the end of the day in the free will debate, all that matters is whether or not you are ultimately free from God. And whether libertarian free will proponents want to admit it or not, true autonomous free will necessitates that you be self-sustained. Because when they speak of being the quote-unquote first cause of their choices, they mean ultimately. They don't just mean that you're not determined by external causes within creation. Even many Calvinists would actually affirm this, though I am not one of them. But the libertarian free will side also means that you are not determined by any transcendent causes of God as well. And that, by definition, is self-sustainment, self-power, ultimate self-causation. Very rarely will they openly admit such things about their view, but it is the logical end of such a view. All of this is once again refuted by God being the sustainer of all things at all moments. Now those of you who regularly listen to this podcast are well aware of the fact that I argue for full-blown determinism, not just of God in existence moment by moment, but also horizontally within creation as well. And I have plenty of reasons for doing so as I have brought up in previous episodes. 
I just wanted to point out that even if I were to concede causal determinism within creation over to the libertarian free will side and let them do away with it, they still have not proven that God does not determine their choices. And this demonstrates the unstoppable strength of this argument coming from God as sustainer. Now at this point I must stop to briefly address the amazingly shallow responses I get on a constant basis regarding my argument from God as sustainer. Since this point is so clear and so strong, the non-Calvinist knows full well that if they accept what I've been putting forth regarding God as sustainer, then they forfeit any and all objections they could have ever raised against the Calvinist. After all, if they think that God merely predestining or planning or determining that an evil take place at some point makes God the horrible author of evil, such a terrible blasphemous view that assaults the character of God, then how much more would the idea of God willingly sustaining the things involved in those evils while they occur? I'm not sure how much closer you can get, metaphysically speaking, to the occurrence of evil than being the ultimate power behind the very existence of the things involved in that evil. So what does the non-Calvinist have to do to get around this? They have to move the concept of God as quote-unquote sustainer away from sustaining existence over to merely sustaining life. This is one of the most desperate arguments I've ever come across. They will speak as if God is merely sustaining us by giving us air to breathe or food to eat. I've heard people say things like, I sustain my children by providing them with food, or I sustain my car by giving it fuel, or I sustain my computer by plugging it into the wall so that it gets electricity. But all of this fails on so many levels that it's almost embarrassing. Firstly, the verses I've mentioned are speaking explicitly of the existence of things, not merely the life of things. While it's true that God gives us life and breath, which are obviously included in our existence, as several other verses explicitly state, these verses I've been mentioning, Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 1.17, speak of all things, including inanimate things that don't even have life to begin with, and it's speaking directly about existence. You providing your children with food might be sustaining, quote-unquote, their physical life, but it has nothing to do with sustaining their existence. You do not, by your very power, sustain every part of your child's existence nor do you sustain the existence of the food that you provide them, nor do you give power to the functioning of your child's body to break that food down and make use of it. God's power causes all of those things, not you. If you stop feeding your child, or fueling your car, or unplug your computer, they don't cease to exist. But if God stops upholding those things by his power, they would certainly cease to exist. God actively upholds the existence of things. He does not merely, quote-unquote, allow another power to uphold its own existence. Moving on, even if we were to grant such a view, would it then mean that when God stops supplying you with air and food and you die a physical death, that he's no longer upholding, quote-unquote, upholding your existence? Or that you're no longer, quote-unquote, having your being in him? This is absurd, obviously, but it would be the logical conclusion of this view. So if you insist that God is not actually upholding your existence by his power, but he's merely keeping you alive, what power then is upholding your existence? Are you self-sustained? Are you your own ultimate power? This is the unavoidable implication of the statement such as, quote-unquote, God allows me to continue to exist. God doesn't allow you to continue to exist as if another ultimate power is involved in your existence. He actively determines that you continue to exist by his own power, the only ultimate power. What's sad is I've actually had an alarming number of people come right out and say, boldly, yes, God has created self-sustained things without a single verse of scripture saying so. And worse yet, in direct opposition to the clear scriptures I've put forth in this episode, they've actually taken a property of God, self-existence and self-sufficiency, property of eternality, and attributed it to created things. This is called deism, idolatry, plain and simple. It's heretical and unbiblical. 
What this objection boils down to is the absurd claim that somehow God can uphold the existence of something that he is not in control of, that he can somehow cause my existence, but not cause my actions. I hear that a lot. There are numerous problems with these types of claims. First of all, you can't separate your actions from your existence to begin with. Your actions are literally a change in the state of your existence. So if God is causing your continued existence moment by moment as you experience a change in state, then he's causing the change of state as well. He's the ultimate power and reason that your existence would ever change state to begin with. There's no way around this. The next point is that such a claim would mean that God is not in control of his own power. Such a claim would mean that somehow God's power is the ultimate reason for my existence at all moments, but God's not in control of the way in which that power causes my existence at some moments. I am in ultimate control somehow. I control God's power regarding my existence, things like thoughts and choices. Ultimately, by what power do I control God's power, I wonder? We've now gone from simply unbiblical to purely blasphemous. And the other side considers it a misrepresentation when I accuse them of placing man on the same level as God, ultimately? If you are somehow dictating the way in which God's ultimate power governs your existence, that is precisely what you are doing with such a view. Whether or not you realize it or are willing to admit it is, of course, another matter entirely. To help put this in perspective, I have a simple question. When God exerted his power to create all things in the beginning, was he in absolute control of precisely the way in which things came into existence? I think the answer is obviously yes. Of course. God didn't just throw his power out there blindly and wait to see what popped into existence. He was in absolute control of what came into existence and precisely the way in which it came into existence. Would it not follow then, logically speaking, that God would also be in absolute control of the way in which things continue to exist moment by moment? To try to say that God can cause the continued existence of something without causing the way in which it continues to exist is as absurd as saying that God could have created blindly or randomly. That somehow something other than God's power could have dictated the result of God's power. This is 100% illogical and unbiblical. God is the ultimate power. He's the only ultimate power. And that fact didn't change after God created either. You are not an ultimate power which gets to dictate the way in which God's power sustains you. You do not wield the sustaining power of God with your almighty free will. You are a created power which exists and functions by the ultimate will and power of God. So the next time you hear someone say something like, Yes, God upholds my existence, but he upholds my existence as a quote-unquote libertarianly free, autonomous creature. That's how he upholds my existence. Might sound nice on its face, but you should now be able to recognize that it's a direct contradiction. You want to somehow say that God is in control of the existence of something he's not in control of. You want to somehow say that God can determine to sustain the existence of something in a way or a state that he does not determine. That's nonsense, and not a single verse of scripture will back it up. Not to mention that words like free and freedom are often thrown around without properly assigning a reference point. In these ultimate discussions, the only reference point that matters is God. And since we have established that every part of our existence at all times is under the direct power of God, then by definition, no part of your existence is ever free from him. Something cannot be free from God when that thing requires the very control of God to exist in the first place. Ironically, then, the only way the statement, God upholds my existence as a free creature, wouldn't be a contradiction is if your reference point for the quote-unquote freedom of the creature being upheld by God is something other than God. Maybe you mean to say that a creature is free from force or coercion because it's always doing what it wants. Okay, that's great. So the creature is free from other things in creation. Wonderful. Everyone believes that. But don't pretend that the creature is free from the very God upon which its very existence depends. And this brings me to the final point in this portion regarding causation. Again, the focus of this episode is not free will, 
but I must point out the error of a very common accusation against Calvinism, and that is that if God is the author of sin, then he must be forcing people to sin. Given everything we laid out so far, you should be able to see the error in this thinking. Keeping in mind the context of this discussion, God's ultimate metaphysical relationship to his creation, to say that God would be forcing something to do something is a fallacy. To say that God has to force something to occur, which can only ultimately occur if God himself causes it to occur, makes no sense. Force implies that there is something which is not already under the control of the one doing the forcing. But if God's power is sustaining every part of your existence, then this includes not just your choice and your action, but everything about your existence that relates to those choices and actions as well, such as your thoughts and your desires and your emotions. When God causes something to occur, he does not need to force it to occur as if doing battle with another ultimate power alongside him. God's causation is once again of existence. It underlies all of the created storyline level causes that we observe. So when God causes you to think a thought or to have a desire or to make a choice, he's not forcing any of it. He's the very grounding for the existence of all of it in the first place. So in this context of discussion, the idea of force is actually not strong enough to describe God's metaphysical relationship to you. When it comes to God's control of your existence, you are completely and exhaustively under his control. And this is why any and all humanistic analogies that you try to use to describe God's relationship to you as your creator and sustainer will fall short. You have to exert force over against other people and other things because you do not uphold those things by your power in the first place. You are just one created thing alongside another. Now I know what a lot of you guys are thinking at this point. You're thinking, well, if what you're saying is true and everything happens according to the will of God to begin with, why does God ever need to do anything? Why do we have cover to cover in the Bible all these examples of God interacting with people? Why does God warn people, give people options, command people, thwart people? Some might even say, quote unquote, force or persuade people to do things, with examples like Jonah and the big fish or the Apostle Paul being knocked off his horse and blinded. Surely these examples directly contradict and refute everything you've been putting forth here. But all you need to do to understand these things in light of what I've been saying is to once again distinguish between God acting as the transcendent sustainer and God interacting in time on the storyline level. God has chosen to write himself into his story, and he has done so as a means of interaction with us and to accomplish his purposes. He didn't have to participate in creation, but he chose to. And rather than just snapping his fingers to have things done in creation without any means, he has chosen to include himself as a means by which many things are accomplished. So God most certainly participates in that horizontal line of causes and effects within creation to become part of the ABCs and 123s, so to speak. Whether it's giving commands or warnings, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, or work of the Holy Spirit on the heart of a sinner to bring them to faith in him, these are all examples of God writing himself into his own story and taking part. But just remember, though, that even while God is interacting with us in time, he is still always outer acting as the ultimate sustaining causative power of it all. While God's storyline level causation might only be every now and then and here and there, his ultimate causation of the existence of all things is always there. And in my opinion, this is the greatest misunderstanding surrounding this entire debate. Conflating, equating, or confusing the causation of God in time with the causation of God as sustainer of all things. And is it at this point that I would like to transition into demonstrating this very principle from the scriptures. I'm now going to demonstrate clearly from Scripture that God is in absolute control of all categories of creation, including the weather, plants and vegetation, the animals, and lastly, the hearts and minds of creatures. I will also be addressing some of the more overarching and all-inclusive statements in Scripture as well. I want you all to keep in mind the things we've already covered. 
especially regarding the metaphysical relationship that God has to his creation as sustainer. The fact that God's power is always at work and always the basis for existence and functionality within existence. With this proper foundational understanding in place, I think many of you will begin to realize that all of these verses I'm about to go through are not examples of the biblical authors ascribing power and control to God every now and then or in quote-unquote special circumstances, but rather they are examples of the biblical authors giving recognition to the power and control of God that has been there all along. The first category of creation that I would like to cover concerning God's ultimate control is the weather. There are hundreds of verses in the Bible that ascribe direct control over the weather to God. I want you to notice that many of these verses do not merely mention God's control, but they also mention God's purpose and intentions. Remember, if God's going to act, then there's purpose and intention behind it. And even in the things that we consider oftentimes to be the most mundane things, like a nice sunny day or a rainstorm, are in fact worked by God for specific purposes. I also want you to keep in mind the concept that we've laid out regarding God's ultimate causation. The difference between God quote-unquote acting as transcendent creator sustainer and God quote-unquote acting in time on the storyline level. Ask yourself as we go through these verses, in what sense are the biblical authors speaking of God acting? This is the most important question to keep in mind as we go through these categories, and especially as we end even with the thoughts and actions of creatures. First verse I'd like to consider is Jeremiah 10.13, which says, When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This is a very clear and straightforward text ascribing control of the wind, clouds, and rain to God. Additionally, Amos 4.7 says, I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not have rain would wither. Notice here, we have the added idea that God is not only in control of the weather, but also that what he does with the weather has specific purposes. God withholds rain from some, and he gives rain to others, and he has reasons and intentions in those actions. To make some of those intentions even more clear, consider Job. Job 37, 10, 13 says, By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn round and round by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Notice the meticulous language being used here. God loads the clouds with moisture. They turn round and round by his guidance. And since God is doing it all, there must be intention and purpose in these actions. As it says, some for correction and some for love. He causes, yes, it used that word, he causes it all to happen. Remember what we just went over, causation? The difference between God acting and causing all things transcendently a sustainer and acting in time to cause things directly on the storyline level? It's important to note that the biblical authors, even though oftentimes using poetic language, such as the breath of God gives ice, most certainly did not view God as some sort of Zeus literally sitting in heaven and sending the rain, or sending his lightning. This is obviously all descriptive of God as the transcendent sustainer and quote-unquote worker of all things. Now I could go on and on with verses like this, but let's just ask some simple questions. These verses say that God guides the clouds, but we all know that clouds move because of wind and air pressure, right? And what about the wind itself? Is God literally manifesting creation, blowing the wind with his mouth? Of course not. We know that the wind is the result of air pressure and circulation. And what about the rain and the process behind rain? Is God the sun which causes the water to evaporate? No. Is God the wind which brings the rain? No. Is God the gravity that causes the water to fall to the ground? No. God is not any of these things. 
but these things are all created and sustained and caused to function in those ways by his ultimate power. Now, the biblical authors may not have even been aware of some of the things that we are today, scientifically speaking, but they don't need to know the quote-unquote natural operations of the weather to know that God is the ultimate power behind them. This is why I laugh at atheists who think that because we have figured something out scientifically that we no longer need God to explain it. All I have to say to them is, congratulations, you've figured out the way in which God works something. Figuring out how God works something does not remove the need for God as the ultimate power behind the working of it. This is another critical concept that we will keep in mind as we go through these categories. There's a difference between saying God quote-unquote did something within creation on a storyline level and saying that God quote-unquote did something as transcendent creator or sustainer. Now another critical question you need to ask yourself is, are these verses speaking of something that is always true or is it just a special case? Is God sometimes in control of the weather and other times not? As you can see, these are clearly and undeniably speaking in generalities. They are ascribing all of it at all times to God. They are not merely saying, well, on this day in history, God sent the wind or the rain. So ask yourself, when it rained yesterday, was that God at work? Was that something God did? Did God send that rain? The biblical answer is yes, of course. The biblical answer is never what many have assumed, a semi-deistic idea that God quote-unquote set things in motion to function under natural laws and then sits back watching and poking around every now and then. This is unfortunately a view that many, many Christians have regarding God's metaphysical relationship to the, his creation. They actually think that God created these self-sustained natural laws like gravity and chemistry, and that the Bible can say God quote-unquote sent the rain because he created all the things involved and set it all in motion. But once again, such an interpretation is only possible if you ignore the foundational verses teaching that God's power is always at work in sustaining these things. The Bible never ascribes ultimate power to things like quote-unquote natural laws. Natural laws are merely descriptions and observations of the ways in which God normally or regularly exercises his power. Which means that miracles are not, contrary to the thinking of many, miracles are not examples of God exerting his power where otherwise he wasn't, but rather miracles are examples of God exerting his power differently than he normally does. I often ask people who think that God is not always in control and who think that the Bible with verses like these is merely mentioning quote-unquote special cases of God's power at work. I often ask, what does special rain sent by God look like compared to normal rain? Does it glow a little bit? It, does it taste different? Does it have a magical additive to it that helps crops grow bigger and better? Does special wind sent by God have a different smell or feel to it? Do the clouds move differently than normal, quote-unquote, when God is moving them with his special wind? If your answer to all these questions is no, then how would you ever know those, quote-unquote, special times that God is controlling the weather? Was it only in biblical times that God controlled the weather? Now, obviously, I think that all of these questions are absurd, but I mention them to speak to the seriousness of this recognition, the recognition that God is always in control of the weather. And keeping in mind what we went over earlier, God is not merely quote-unquote controlling something that might be happening differently if he weren't in control, but rather the ultimate reason any of it is happening the way it's happening in the first place is the power and control of God. Now, does the Bible also speak of specific weather-related events and ascribe them to God as well? Well, of course it does. Consider a verse such as Jonah 1.4. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Or similarly in Jonah 4.8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So with the foundational teaching in place that God is always in control of the weather, when we read attributions of particular weather-related events to God, we should not be viewing these as special examples of God controlling the weather, but rather an emphasis of that particular truth at particular times to drive home a point. 
That point most of the time being that God has a purpose in what is going on. The author is emphasizing God's control in a particular instance to make a point. It also speaks to the fact that many verses like these are first-person accounts of particular events. And we do this all the time, or we think this way all the time, if you stop and think about it. I can fully recognize as a Christian that God is in control of all weather-related events. But I still thank God for specific weather-related events, like a nice sunny day or a warm thunderstorm, as it pertains to me. When I thank God for those specific instances, is the assumption there that I'm somehow only ascribing the control of God to those instances but not others? Of course not. On the contrary, my entire basis for affirming and giving thanks to God for those specific instances is my foundational belief in the absolute control of God over all instances. I just happen to be paying more attention at the time to the one I was immediately experiencing. I don't need a verse of scripture to tell me that yesterday, January 24th, 2022, God sent that rain to me, and therefore I should thank him for it. No, I can thank him for it because any rain that I have ever received came from him. I can point to yesterday's rain and declare to everyone that God sent it by quoting scriptures like the three I just quoted, which plainly say that God does all these things. As a final minor note, many will say, okay, yeah, God is in control of all that weather stuff, but what does that have to do with my free will? Now, keeping in mind that I'm, again, not focusing on free will in this episode, I just have to quickly ask, how can you possibly deny or disconnect the impact that things like the weather have on the choices of man? For example, how many people have chosen to move their entire families to new locations because it was too cold there, or too hot there, or too many tornadoes there, or too many earthquakes there, changing the entire course of their lives in the process, and the lives of countless others they will go on to interact with? How can you deny that whether someone's crops receive enough rain or not will have drastically different impacts on their lives and choices? How can you ignore the thousands or perhaps millions of people who have died throughout history because of weather-related events? And you mean to tell me that these things don't have causative relationship to you and your almighty free will? I think a lot of people need to stop and consider just how interconnected reality truly is and recognize that we are a part of that reality. We do not transcend it. When the other side tries to say, yeah, those things like the weather, they're influential, but they're not determinative. They're missing the point entirely. You're ignoring the fact that God takes those weather-related actions knowing precisely what it will result in people doing. Whether or not you want to consider it quote-unquote causative is irrelevant to the fact that God, by taking those actions, is determining and ensuring whatever he foreknows will result from those actions will take place. Even when it involves the choices of creatures, you once again cannot escape the ultimate control of God. So the next time you try to hear someone dismiss this fact of reality by saying, God's knowledge is not causative, Remind them that no one is saying God's knowledge is what is causing things. What we're saying is that God has knowledge of what his own actions will cause. God knows the results of his own actions, and by taking those actions, he determines the foreknown results of those actions. And when someone says, just because God foreknows something doesn't mean he caused it, remember that this would only be true if God is foreknowing things about things that he has nothing to do with. But as we continually point out, if everything that exists was created by God, and everything that continues to exist is sustained by God, then there is no such thing as something that God has nothing to do with. God's knowledge doesn't cause anything. Rather, God knows what he himself will cause, as the creator and sustainer of all that exists. The non-Calvinist has no logical road to escape this. They will simply appeal to mystery. We're going to build this up and up categorically until we reach the creature, and you'll realize by the end of this that you do not get to escape the control of God. The next brief category, hopefully far more brief, that I'd like to cover is plants and vegetation. I'd like to mention a few verses that speak of God's control and causation over the growing of plants and vegetation. Some of these also contain within them references to the weather as well. It's quite common to find these things mentioned together. First of all, in Psalm 104.14, we read that, You cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Notice, God is causing grass to grow for the livestock, and he is causing plants to grow for man to cultivate. 
Again, these are general truths that are always true. These days we understand the quote-unquote natural process of how plants grow, involving the sun, water, photosynthesis, etc. So how can the biblical authors say that God causes the growth? Once again, they don't need to understand the storyline outplay of how or why the plants grow in order to know and understand that the God who sustains it all is causing it. Two more quick verses to drive the point home. Job 38, 25-27 Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is? on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, to make the ground sprout with grass? This verse is in the form of a question. Who does this? Who makes the grass grow in the desolate places? The answer of the biblical authors is God does, of course. Psalm 147.8 says, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. So remember our primary point here, distinguishing between what's occurring in creation on the storyline level what God's role plays as sustainer of it all. Properly understanding God's relationship to creation, it's obviously a true statement to say that the sun causes the growth of plants, or that the water causes growth, or even that human beings cause growth in a certain sense by tending to the plants. All of that storyline level causation is true and undeniable. And yet, it's also just as true to say God causes the growth. Why? Because God is in control of it all. He can be said to be quote-unquote doing it as the transcendent sustainer of all things. And once again, God has intentions in all of his actions. Sometimes the rain comes and the crops grow and people can eat. Sometimes the rain doesn't come and the crops wither and die and people starve. As Christians, we need to come to grips with this reality. God is in control of it all, and therefore he must have purposes in it all. Sometimes God's intentions are gracious and loving, and other times they are forms of judgment. It's not always fun to talk about, but it's something that needs to be kept in mind. The next and even more brief category I'd like to cover is the animals. Just some quick examples. First, we have the general examples of God's exhaustive control, such as Genesis' account, where God not only creates the animals, but he brings them to Adam to be named, or the account of Noah, where God brings the animals to the ark. God uses ravens to feed Elijah in 1 Kings 17. God keeps lions from killing Daniel in Daniel 6.22. And we all know the story of Jonah and the big fish. We also have Matthew 17.27, God causes a fish to bring a coin to Peter to help pay for taxes. And we will certainly never forget about the plagues sent against Egypt involving frogs, locusts, and insects. If you had considered these examples apart from the foundations we've already laid out, you would probably assume that what most people do, these are examples of God controlling things that he does not normally or regularly control. But when we once again consider the foundational truth that God is the sustainer of all things at all times, we realize that even though God has done some very extraordinary things involving the actions of animals, God has always been in control even over the ordinary actions of animals. For example, in Matthew 10:29, we all know this one, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Surely we don't take this to mean that only birds do not fall to the ground apart from the father. We can surely understand that all animals are under the care of God, and whether they eat or drink, live or die, is never apart from the father. In fact, the very next passage goes on to say, Fear not then, for you have more value than many sparrows. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground, a.k.a. die, apart from the father, how much more is this applicable to human beings of far more value? Whether someone eats or drinks, lives or dies, it is never apart from the father. It is all by his will. Now, I think this is a good point to briefly mention the idea of natural evil, quote-unquote, which commonly refers to things like natural disasters, sickness, disease, pain, suffering, etc. We call these things evil because they are privations of the ways that things should be. We do not look at a tornado or a flood as bad because the air or water that makes them up is bad. We look at them as bad because of the way they are functioning and the effects they are having on the things around them. 
To make a long story short, all Christians agree and acknowledge that the fall of Adam brought about numerous privations in creation. These are movements away from the way things would be functioning if they were quote-unquote good in the functional sense. Not in the moral sense, but the functional sense in terms of how God first created them. When God created in the beginning and said that things were quote-unquote good, this was a reference to their function. Prior to the fall, there was no sickness or disease, no pain or suffering, and we might even assume no crazy natural disasters like tornadoes or floods. After all, God pronounced a curse upon creation, and while many of the things we consider natural evils were not explicitly mentioned as results of that curse, all Christians agree that they clearly are. But what is God's relationship to natural evil? What is his role? We all know that he pronounced and inflicted this curse upon creation, but is he also the ultimate metaphysical power behind all the occurrences of natural evil? Or has he merely set the curse in motion and allowed it to run wild and chaotic? I've heard people try to explain these things like God brings the rain, by saying that God created the systems by which these things operate, and he set them in motion. He made it possible, and it's in that sense that God can said to be quote-unquote doing it. But I'm not really sure what the goal of his particular line of reasoning is, because if God setting things in motion and making things possible is enough to ultimately credit God with bringing the rain, to be consistent, it would also be enough to credit God with bringing the floods and the tornadoes and the earthquakes as well, right? And when the discussion moves to the idea of moral evil and the actions of man, if you were to be consistent, then you would also have to say that God brought these evil actions of man about because he was the one who created man with free will and set it all in motion. He made it possible, right? This attempt to metaphysically distance God from the occurrence of things in creation, while also maintaining what the Bible says about God's involvement, doesn't help the non-Calvinist case at all at the end of the day. All you end up doing is creating a completely unbiblical, semi-deistic view that has self-sustained, self-powered things which are not under the complete power and control of God all for the sake of holding on to a false assumption that God can't play any role at all in the quote-unquote bad stuff. Maybe you should consider abandoning your false assumptions and allow God to speak for himself when he declares, I am the one who does all these things. Let's consider a very common verse brought up in this discussion. Isaiah 45, 7. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And if this verse wasn't clear enough, you have Amos 3.6, which says, Does the disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Once again, these verses are all-inclusive. Wherever you find well-being, God made it that way. Wherever you find calamity or disaster, God made it that way as well. There is no other God. There is no other ultimate power that is bringing these things about. But let's break this down and consider God's role more closely. Let's start with the fun stuff. Well-being. How can God said to create or make well-being? Does God rain bundles of money down on people from heaven? Does he snap his fingers and magically grant people good health and job promotions? Does he create out of nothing their well-being in the same way he first created the universe? Obviously not. The word create being used here is clearly referring to his action of bringing about a state of affairs. And when we consider these state of affairs, just because we recognize that God is in ultimate control of it all does not mean that we should be ignoring all the storyline level reasons and ways in which these things occur. Well-being can come in all sorts of forms, resulting from the weather, personal choices, the choices of others around us, food and medicine leading to good health, the list goes on and on. And the same thing goes for calamity, the bad side of the coin. Calamity includes all sorts of horrible things, like sickness and disease, starvation, earthquakes and floods, and even the choices of human beings with respect to one another, as in such instances as war and conquering. All of these things are included in the calamity that God is said to do. So if all of those storyline level things are causes and reasons behind your well-being and calamity, what is God doing claiming to be the one who does it all? There's only one way to answer that question. Our consistent recognition of God in the transcendent position. God does not do these things in the horizontal causal sense that we do them or that something like gravity does them. 
He does them as the very ground of all being and existence, the transcendent sustainer of all those things which are interacting and functioning, whether good or bad. We should also consider Exodus 4.11. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Here we have God taking full credit for why some people are born mute, deaf, or blind. These obviously fall in the category of natural evil, which again deals with privations or movements away from the ways that things should be. Obviously, we consider being deaf or blind to be a bad thing, not morally, but functionally. And yet God declares that he is the one who makes people this way. This is not something that God merely allows to happen as an unfortunate result of the fall. I also point out that as science advances and we continue to discover the quote-unquote natural reasons behind these types of things, it can still always be said that God makes it this way because he is in transcendent control of it all. And this is where it's once again not fun to talk about, but you have to remember that God has intentions and purposes in everything that he does. So when God causes bad things like pain and suffering, what are his intentions in that? And don't think you can escape this question by saying, oh, God allows the suffering. That's still an action of God that requires purpose and intention. So what was God's purpose and intention in allowing all the pain and suffering? On the negative side, pain and suffering often comes as forms of judgment against fallen sinners. This is clear in scripture. And on the positive side, as Christians, the Bible says in Philippians 1.29 that it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Even our pain and suffering as Christians is said to be granted by God for the sake of Christ. So notice the difference in approach between the Calvinist and the non-Calvinist. The non-Calvinist makes false assumptions that results in them attempting to distance God from all the bad stuff. The non-Calvinist looks out into the world and sees all sorts of terrible things occurring and concludes, God can't have anything to do with that. And since he has nothing to do with that, he must not have had a purpose or intention in, in its occurrence. The Calvinist, on the other hand, allows the Bible to speak clearly to the fact that all things, including the bad things, are worked by God. And therefore, God has a purpose and intention in all of it. Some things as judgment some as loving correction. And when we consider death, some things are a means by which to bring sinners into final judgment, and some even as a means by which to bring his saints to glory to be with him. Yes, even death, these bad things, these natural evils, this calamity that God himself says, I do all of it, even includes the death of his creatures. 1 Samuel 2, 6 and 7 says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Now I understand this gets a little repetitive, but I'd like to take a moment once again to break this down very quickly and ask the same questions we've been asking all along. First part says that the Lord kills and brings to life. Let's ask the how question once more. How does God kill people? He doesn't reach down out of heaven and literally slay them or strike them dead, does he? The context of the passage is clearly speaking in broad generalities of God's control over the affairs of his creatures. God gives life and he takes it away. He has every right to do so. To introduce a little bit of a shock factor here, I would go so far as to say that every person who has ever died has been quote-unquote killed by God. Not murdered, of course. God can't murder. It's logically impossible for him to murder. For God to be able to murder would imply that there is life out there somewhere that he has no right over, and that he is not the giver of to begin with, which is of course impossible. But any person who has ever died, it can be said that they were killed by God. God himself says so, because God is in control of all things. And on to the next part, God makes poor and he makes rich. Again, these types of statements only make sense if God is in control of all things. People are poor for all sorts of reasons, including the choices of themselves and others. And people are rich for all sorts of reasons as well, including their choices and the choices of others. God is not airdropping money down out of heaven for people, but it can still be said that God makes poor and makes rich because he's in control of it all. And since we're on the topic of God making people rich, how are we to understand as Christians the prosperity of the ungodly? 
oftentimes those who openly hate God? Why is it so often that the most ungodly people prosper the most in this life, while the most godly people suffer and struggle? Seems to be a little backwards, doesn't it? The psalmist of Psalm 73 struggled with this very idea, as we read in Psalm 73, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I just stopped to note that I think we've all been envious of the prosperity of the wicked at some point, right? Continuing on, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 12 says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I think we've all had this thought throughout our lives. Why is it that the ungodly, some even openly haters of God, prosper so much in wealth and health? If what I'm saying about God being in control of all things is true, if God is the one who makes them rich and wealthy and healthy, why would he do that for God-haters? Well, some of the most godly people on the planet suffer horribly in this life. To answer this, just remember, every action of God has a purpose and intention. What does the passage go on to say? Verse 16 says, But when I thought on how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Notice what it says about the wicked and their prosperity. God has set them in slippery places and made them fall to ruin. In other places, the Bible says things like, People have coals, burning coals heaped upon their heads. Greater judgment, greater condemnation. This is the intention of the actions of God regarding their prosperity. Once again, not fun to talk about, but this is a biblical truth nonetheless. In Deuteronomy 32:39, we read, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. The same principles apply. Anytime someone is killed or made alive or wounded or healed, God says, I'm the one who does all these things. There is no other God, no other ultimate power at work. Amos 4.10 says, I sent amongst you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. Here God said, I killed your young men with the sword. What does this mean? Was God actually manifest in creation using swords to kill people? Of course not. God sent a wicked nation against Israel. And since God is in control of all things, when people killed other people with their sword, God can actually say, I did that. I killed your young men with the sword. For those that did the killing on the storyline level, their action was murder. It was sinful. And yet God's control over it all can said to be an action of holy and righteous judgment. You once again notice that God's actions as transcendent sustainer can include the actions of human beings, and while God's action is good, their actions are still sinful. I'm not saying that these sorts of things are fun to talk about, but for a Christian, they should not be ignored. You need to have a place for these types of things in your worldview, and in my opinion, the consistent position I've been putting forth in this episode regarding God's absolute control of all things is the only way to account for it. Let's move on for a moment to discuss a lighter topic. What about those things that seem random to us? Does God control that category of creation? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Proverbs 16.33, which says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, we know that lots were an ancient form of dice used in gambling. An example of this can be seen in Matthew 27.35, when the soldiers cast lots to divide Jesus' garments amongst themselves. The Bible also gives many accounts of people using lots to discern the will of God regarding particular decisions or events. Those who would cast lots to discern the will of God obviously did so in recognition of God's control over all things, even in the things that seem quote-unquote random to us. The verse says that the lot is cast, but every decision is of the Lord. Ask yourself once again, in what way is God quote-unquote determining the results of the casting of lots, especially considering that it involves the actions of human beings? Do you think God casts a magic spell mid-air every time dice are thrown? If not, then you're left with a consistent idea we've been establishing over and over. God's control over all things is what allows the biblical author to declare that every decision of the lots or dice is from the Lord. In order for every decision to be of the Lord, 
God needs to be in control of all the things that go into the casting of lots or dice. How hard they're thrown, what they hit, what shape they are, how much they weigh, so on and so forth. It's the only way such a verse makes sense. We once again have all the storyline level causation involved in something that is said to be quote-unquote of the Lord. I've heard some attempt to explain this verse away as teaching merely that men cannot thwart God or his purposes by leaving decisions to quote-unquote chance. First of all, I don't see anything in the context of the verse that suggests that people were casting lots in attempts to thwart God's purposes. In fact, there are many instances in scripture where people cast lots to discern the will of God. I couldn't find a single instance where people cast lots in attempts to thwart God. They cast lots in favor of doing God's will, not to thwart it. On top of that, I couldn't find any verse that actually condemned the casting of lots to discern the will of God in the first place. But even if this were true, and it was the point of Proverbs 16.33, it still doesn't escape the whole God controlling it all part. Just think about it. Why is it that casting lots would never thwart God? Is it merely because God will find a way to work around whatever decision that you left to randomness or chance that is not under the control of God? Is it just that God's quote-unquote big enough to work around things like randomness that he doesn't control? That's not what the verse is saying, and that's not the point of the verse. The entire point of the verse is that there is no such thing as randomness in the first place. There is no such thing as something that God is not in control of to begin with. The verse says every decision of the lots being cast is of the Lord. The entire reason casting lots would never thwart God is precisely because of his control over it all, not in spite of his lack of control. Now, with that aside, I am not in any way suggesting that Christians start rolling dice or flipping coins to make all of their decisions in life. I think that 99.99% of our decisions are able to be made according to logic, reason, experience, and the clear teaching of scripture, amongst many other things. But there are rare instances when we are entirely unsure what the best course of action is, and I can admit to having flipped a few coins here and there throughout my life. Some of those coin flippings were done prior to my being a Christian when I believed that randomness was an actual thing, and some of them were done even as a Christian in full recognition of God's absolute control of all things. In my personal opinion, and this is a major disclaimer here, in my personal opinion, such an action would only be sinful if you were doing so with the idea of quote-unquote leaving it up to chance. By ascribing ultimate control of the situation to anything other than God is where the sin in such an action lies. But to do such a thing with firm recognition and affirmation of God's control over all things is precisely what we find with several scriptural examples of people doing just that, casting laws to discern the will of God. Along with verses like Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. I would like to point out, though, that even though we might not all cast lots or throw dice as Christians, we have certainly all at one time or another looked at events surrounding us and asked ourselves, is God trying to tell me something here? Is God teaching me a lesson? Is God guiding me down a particular path? I simply point out that such thoughts only make sense if you recognize God's control over all things. And if those types of recognitions and affirmations of God's control are not sinful, then neither would casting lots or dice. Again, that's my personal opinion, and you don't have to agree. And now we finally reach the point where we can start looking more precisely at what the Bible says regarding God's control over the hearts, minds, and actions of his creatures. Once again, keep in mind the overall theme we've been putting forth here. The first verse I'd like to look at is Proverbs 21.1. This is a general verse. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The first thing to notice is that it does not merely say the king's heart could be in the hands of the Lord if he wanted to turn it wherever he wills, but rather it makes a simple statement. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. If this is just a simple statement of fact that is always true, then every quote-unquote turning of the king's heart is by the will of God. This will become extremely important when we address heart hardening in just a moment. The next point is that although it mentions the king's heart specifically, we should not understand this as teaching that only king's hearts are in the hands of the Lord, as if kings are the only ones unfortunate enough to be under the control of God. The point is that kings are the most powerful men on earth, and if their hearts are under the complete control of God, how much more the common person? And the last question to ask is, how does God direct or control people's hearts? This verse is obviously not referring to God's involvement on the storyline horizontal level of causation, as would be the case, for example, when God works in a person's heart by the Holy Spirit. 
Again, this is just a general statement regarding God's control over the hearts of his creatures, just like all of the other general categorical statements that we've gone over thus far. In the same way that God being in control of all things can lead the biblical authors to declare things like he sends the rain, or that he grows the grass and the crops, or that he kills and brings to life, or that he makes poor and makes rich, or that he creates prosperity as well as calamity, we obviously recognize that none of this ever means that God must be manifest within creation directly working such things in the horizontal line of causation. The biblical authors also recognize that God directs our hearts, quote-unquote, wherever he wishes and for his purposes, as the one who is in control of all the storyline-level things that involve that which moves people's hearts. Let's jump right into giving some more specific examples from scripture. We all know the case of Pharaoh as a prime example of God being in control of someone's heart. But the question I have to ask once again is, was this a special instance of God being in quote-unquote control of someone's heart? Or was this an emphasis of the truth that God is always in control of the hearts of his creatures? When most people read the account of Pharaoh and the hardening of his heart, they read instances where Pharaoh is said to be the one hardening his own heart, and then they read instances where God is said to be the one doing the hardening. They then conclude that this must be a case of either or, either Pharaoh or God, and that God, rather than being in control from start to finish, was merely stepping in here and there to exert control at various times. It is easily demonstrable, however, that this was not a case of either or, but rather a case of giving accounts of the same event from start to finish from two perspectives, one being the down-to-earth storyline level perspective, while the other being the ultimate recognition that God is in control of all things perspective. This is easily proven and demonstrated when you consider a few simple points. First, I simply have to ask, what is the result of God hardening a person's heart? What does it look like in time and in creation when God hardens someone's heart? Is it not obvious that the person hardens their own heart? Heart hardening is a moral action of man, is it not? So when God can be said to be hardening someone's heart, does that person all of a sudden find to their own surprise and amazement that they now have a hard heart, as if out of nowhere? Of course not. A person's moral action to harden their own heart is the storyline level outplay of God hardening their heart. You cannot separate the two. In the same way you can't separate God quote-unquote sending the rain or the wind from the storyline level reasons behind the rain and the wind, in the same way you can't separate God quote-unquote causing the grass to grow from all the storyline level reasons behind the grass growing, in the same way you can't separate making God making rich or making poor or creating prosperity or calamity or disaster, you can't separate God's actions as transcendent sustainer from the storyline level outplay of those actions in time. Rather than separating them and placing them both on the ultimate level so that it can only be either or, you need to properly understand the relationship so that you view them as one in light of the other, the storyline in light of the ultimate. This has been our consistent and demonstrable application throughout this entire episode. Now for those who would disagree with what I'm saying, I have two primary ways of demonstrating these things clearly from the Exodus account itself. First of all, in Exodus 4.21 we read, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We see here that prior to Moses going to Pharaoh and giving God's command to let the people go, God tells Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't. When Moses then goes to Pharaoh and gives the command in the very next chapter of Exodus, we see an immediate refusal on Pharaoh's part. After what God just told Moses, what do you think Moses' automatic conclusion was? After all, from his point of view, he saw an arrogant, wicked king stubbornly refusing to let the people go. If that's not an example of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, I don't know what is. But did Moses take this to mean that God was not involved in the hardening? Since Pharaoh hardened his own heart, did Moses tell God to save his heart-hardening powers for another day? Of course not. Moses understood clearly that this was the outplay of what God said he would do. Moses did not make the same false assumptions that so many Christians unfortunately make, that this was an either-or scenario. Instead, Moses fully understood that when Pharaoh hardened his heart, that was God doing the hardening. We see clearly the down-to-earth account as the outplay of the behind-the-scenes account. The next and even more clear example to prove my point is seen at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. In Exodus 9, 34 and 35, we read, 
But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Verse 35, so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And what had God told Moses? God said, I will harden his heart so they won't let the people go. But when we read the very next verse, which is chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And so here you have the exact same instance of a heart hardening being spoken of from two viewpoints. First, Pharaoh hardened his heart, he and his servants. And second, God said, I have hardened his heart, he and his servants. This simple recognition is all it takes to properly understand that it has been this way all along. Some accounts are merely stating what you or I or anyone else would have observed, Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And the other accounts are from the ultimate viewpoint of God doing the hardening because he is in control of it all. It's not an either or, it's both, one in light of the other with God's being ultimate. We can easily see, especially in light of the earlier verse from Proverbs that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, that there was never a single moment when Pharaoh's heart was not in the hands and control of the Lord. Now, just a couple more quick examples of God hardening hearts. We have Deuteronomy 2.30, which says, But King Sion, the king of Hezbodah, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as it is this day. Once again, is this a special instance where God was in control of something that he usually isn't? Or can the biblical author simply say that God did the hardening because they recognize that God is in control of it all? Joshua 11.20 says, For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, and in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Here you have a description of an entire army of people having their hearts hardened by God to come against his own people, which is sinful actions, by the way, and be devoted to destruction, an entire army of hardened hearts. Is it not obvious that the biblical authors were simply giving recognition to the fact that God is in control of all things when they emphasize that control over a particular situation relating to them? I would say that in light of our foundation that God is the sustainer of all things, and that he quote-unquote works all things after the counsel of his will, that at any time a heart was ever hardened, it could be said that God did it. In the same way that the quote-unquote natural process behind why it rains, including the sun and gravity, can be said to be quote-unquote done by God, so too the quote-unquote natural response of a fallen sinful heart to harden itself against the things of God can also be said to be done by God as well. This is also the clear answer to a common objection raised against Calvinists with regards to heart hardening. People often ask, if total depravity or total inability is true, why does God need to harden people's hearts or blind them to the truth? Notice the question assumes that it's either or. The question assumes that either fallen man won't come to God because of total inability, or that fallen man won't come to God because God hardens their hearts. But at this point you should be able to see that it's not either or, it's both, one in light of the other. Fallen sinners will, by nature, harden their hearts against God and against the things of God over and over and over. And yet God, who is in control of all things, can be said to be hardening their hearts each and every single time. One is a storyline-level viewpoint, sinners hardening their hearts, while the other is the transcendent viewpoint, God hardening their hearts. The exact same principle can be applied to the relationship of God quote-unquote blinding someone from the truth and someone quote-unquote closing their eyes to the truth. We all know the instance mentioned in Isaiah 46.10, where God tells Isaiah, Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now all we have to ask is, when this occurs, are the people closing their own eyes to the truth, or is God blinding them from the truth? Once again, it's not an either or, it's both, one in light of the other. In John 12:40, we read, Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He, that is God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Clearly in John, the blinding and hardening is spoken of as God being the one who has done it. 
But in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is asked why he speaks in parables, Jesus says, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but not understand, and you will indeed see, but not perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they could barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears in return, and I would heal them. So once again, we have the exact same instance being spoken of from two viewpoints. They harden their heart, and they close their eyes, and God hardens their heart and closes their eyes. I would also ask those of you who insist on the idea of heart hardening or blinding being an either-or scenario, either God or man, how then, outside of divine revelation of those specific occurrences, would you ever know that God was hardening a heart or blinding someone from the truth? Was it only in biblical times that God did these things? After everything we've covered, and especially in light of the overarching statements, like the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, or that God works all things after the counsel of his will, or that from him and through him and to him are all things, or that we live and move or have our being in God, I think it's clear that the Bible is teaching that God is always in control. Anytime a heart was ever hardened, it can be said both that man hardened their own heart and that God hardened their heart. And anytime a person's eyes were ever closed to the truth, it can be said both that they closed their eyes and that God blinded them. And as a final point on this topic, we simply need to point out that when it comes to heart hardening, the only possible result of heart hardening is sin. It is a sin to harden your heart against God or the things of God. And yet God has no problem saying, I harden hearts. And this is where this gets tied directly into our topic at hand. Is God the author of sin? If God, quote unquote, causing sin makes God the author of sin, then all Christians have God being the author of sin because all Christians have God hardening hearts and causing people to sin. It's logically impossible to escape the fact that God is causing sin when he hardens a heart. Now, you can rightly point out that he is using particular means to accomplish the heart hardening on the storyline level, that God is not manifesting creation directly hardening, but rather using storyline level means. You can point that out. No one is saying that God hardens hearts by a direct work of the Holy Spirit, for example. God obviously uses Moses and the plagues to harden Pharaoh's heart throughout the Exodus account, but the causal connection is logically unavoidable. In fact, Romans chapter 9 goes even further when it says, For this very purpose God raised Pharaoh up, to demonstrate his name and power throughout the whole earth. Pharaoh's heart was obviously being hardened long before the Exodus account, even in the very raising up of Pharaoh. And since God is in control of all things, God can say, I raised Pharaoh up. We also have to recognize that the raising up of Pharaoh included all sorts of horrible things. He was a wicked and ungodly tyrant, no doubt inflicting all sorts of evils throughout his entire lifetime. And yet, Pharaoh still lived and moved and had his being in God, according to Acts 17. Throughout his entire existence, even during the commission of every evil act, God upheld Pharaoh's existence by his own direct power the entire time. It's no wonder God himself can say, I raised him up. Two more quick verses to consider dealing with God's control over people's hearts and minds is uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Did you catch that? This says that God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. Is believing what is false sinful? Of course it is. And yet this verse says that God will take an action which will result in that very sin. Now, keeping in line with everything we've been putting forth, no one is saying that God will send this delusion by manifesting in creation and directly interacting within creation. We can easily understand this verse to be saying that God, who is in ultimate control of all things, will use particular means within creation to affect this strong delusion. Means which certainly include the very sinful nature and desires of those being deceived. The overall point here is that God is in ultimate control of it all and has purposes in it all. Revelation 17, 17 says, For God has put it in their heart to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and ha handing over their royal power to the beast until God's words are fulfilled. This is one of the most explicit verses in the Bible when it comes to God bringing about a sinful action. God is said to put it in their hearts to hand over their power to the beast. 
Just remember, how God does this is certainly through various means within creation, but God's control over it all allows the biblical author to say that God put it in their heart. Now I'd like to continue on by bringing up several more uh, general verses that ascribe various categories of creation to the control of God. I just want to keep hammering this point home from every possible angle. Job 12.23 says that he makes the nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. Again, this is all human activity with storyline level causes at work. Just ask yourself, is it always true or only sometimes true? Can you point at any nation throughout history and say God made that nation great or that God destroyed that nation? This all involves human activity and yet Job can declare that God does it all. He makes the nations great and he destroys them. Daniel 2.21 says that he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Here we have another category introduced, knowledge and understanding. While it's obviously true that people study to gain knowledge and gain wisdom from life choices and experience, it can still be said that God is the one who gives knowledge and understanding because he is the one who is working it all. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following, we read, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, they, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now just apply the same consistent principles that I've been applying to this particular passage. I've, I've never seen God, for example, hand feed a bird or rain bird seed down from heaven but the birds eat and are said to be fed by God. Similarly, I've never seen God airdrop food down out of heaven for me, or clothing for that matter, yet here I am, slightly overweight and well-clothed. The Bible tells me that God feeds me and clothes me. Once again, how do we make sense out of this? If I'm the one that goes to work every day to earn money, and I'm the one who goes to the store to buy the clothes, which were made, by the way, by the efforts of other human beings, and I also buy my food and prepare my food, so on and so forth, what on earth does God have to do with any of that? How can God declare that he feeds me or that he clothes me? Is it merely because he created it all and made it possible? Where is such language found in scripture? Where does God ever say, I did such and such by making it possible? Such a view only comes about when you refuse to let go of unbiblical false assumptions like autonomous free will, or the idea that God can't quote-unquote have anything to do with the bad stuff. All of the verses I've gone over so far completely destroy these false assumptions. They clearly state God does these things. And what about asking God to bless our food to our bodies when we eat? I think that's something we all do. What are you asking God to do exactly? Cast a magic spell? Are you asking God to do something special that he hasn't already been doing when you eat food? Of course not. You're praying a prayer of recognition to God, recognizing that your body can't even benefit from the food that you're about to eat unless God's power causes your body to benefit. God's power is behind every function in this universe, including your body breaking down food and supplying it for energy and health. After everything I've laid out, it should be obvious. God is in control of it all, every step along the way. All of it occurs by his will and his intention and his purpose. And although my quote-unquote efforts in all these things are certainly a part of what he is working overall, I am to give thanks to him above all else. But what's the ugly side of this then? Not everyone has clothes. Not everyone is fed. People die of starvation every single day on this planet. If God is in absolute control of who is fed and who is clothed, is it not obvious that he is also in control of who is not? And once we admit this hard truth, do we not also understand that there must be purpose behind it, even if we don't understand it? Remember, God is always acting purposefully. Even in a view which denies quote-unquote causal control of God over these things, still has God allowing it or permitting it, which is still an action and willful choice on God's part, which still necessitates intention and purpose. So these are all tough questions, but they're tough questions that everyone needs to answer. 
my answers are simply an attempt to remain consistent with the foundations that we've been laying out. Moving on, we can't leave out the king of Assyria and his nation's actions against Samaria. In Isaiah 10, 5-7, it says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them, against a people of my wrath I command him to take, spoil, seize, and plunder, and tread them down like the mire of the streets. Not a very pretty sight. And yet God says Assyria is a quote-unquote rod of his anger and fury, and that he quote-unquote sends them against a godless nation to do all manner of horrible atrocities. But notice that God's action in sending such things is holy and righteous. He sends these things as judgment. And yet Assyria is still judged for their sinful actions and atrocities. As Isaiah goes on to say, But he does not so intend, that is Assyria, he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off many nations. Verse 15 goes on to say, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. In other words, the Assyrians had no clue that their actions were a judgment of God. They boasted in themselves and in their own power and purposes. And for this, God judges them, as it says, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness amongst his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled, like the burning of a fire. Once again, we have a clear case of an event involving the sinful actions of human beings, which is also described as an action of God transcendently, God's action was holy and righteous, even though it involved the wicked actions of creatures. Moving on, I can't help but revisit the case of Pharaoh and the plagues, specifically the plagues. What was the point of the plagues against Pharaoh? The point was that God is the one who has control over all of those things, not their false gods. When all those things occur, whether it's frogs or locusts or boils or sicknesses, all this time they thought that their false gods were behind the workings of those things. But God says, nope, that's me. I have always been the one in control of those things. And once again, the emphasis of the plagues is not to say, hey, look here, here's a special example of God controlling these types of things, but usually he doesn't control them. The emphasis of the plagues was judgment upon a people who ascribed categories of creation to an ultimate power other than God. And as a side note, this is ultimately what the doctrine of free will does, whether people realize it or not. It says that there's a part of you, whether it's your will or your mind or your thoughts or your emotions, which is not under the control of God. Looking out at the world and assuming things like free will is a form of idolatry. You think any part of existence is outside of God's control? You think that murder occurring over there is outside of God's control? You want to remove God from the picture and deny his purpose and intention in the occurrences of these things? You think that you're quote-unquote protecting God? On the contrary, you're guilty of idolatry. You're guilty of creating an imaginary ultimate power that is not God. Whether that ultimate power is you or your neighbor, or Hitler, or Satan, or the natural disaster, or the sickness, or the disease, or anything else, to look at any of those things in creation and conclude, that's an ultimate power that is self-sustained, self-caused, or in any way free from God metaphysically, is pure blasphemy and idolatry. You might not make up gods and give them fancy names like the Egyptians did, but the central concept of something existing as an ultimate power that is not under the control of God is idolatry nonetheless. And it's not enough to say that God is in quote-unquote control in the sense that he could step in or that he could control all things if he wanted to. The problem here, once again, is that you're taking God and putting him alongside those other powers. You make him just another power alongside the rest. And you somehow think that this is okay because you view God as so much more powerful than those other things. The problem with that view is it doesn't have God in the transcendent position as sustainer. God is not merely more powerful than all those things. He is the very power behind the existence and the being of any created power that you could ever point at. God is not all powerful because if he wanted to, he could exert power over all things and control them. God is all powerful because his power is behind the continued existence of all things at all times in the first place. God is all powerful, not just in degree, 
but also in extent. His power extends over all creation, and nothing is left out. That is why God is all-powerful. And any view which looks at a created thing as not being under the power and control of God is a view which is limiting God's extent of power and therefore, by definition, does not have an all-powerful view of God. And while, once again, I didn't focus too much on autonomous libertarian free will in this episode, I want people to recognize that the foundations we've laid out in this episode regarding God's metaphysical relationship to his creation logically exclude the possibility of it from the start. Freedom from God is logically impossible. We don't even need to get into all the arguments that come about after that false assumption has been made that God can give you free will in the first place. If it can be proven that no part of man's existence is ever free from God at any point in time, then autonomous libertarian free will is logically impossible from the start. It's so unbiblical that we shouldn't even be entertaining the concept in the first place. Another quick example is 2 Kings 19, verse 25. Have you not heard? Long ago I did it. From ancient times I have planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Here is just another example of God saying, I have done this, even though it includes the horrible actions of creatures destroying cities. Now we can't forget about the story of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. Notice what Joseph says regarding the situation in Genesis 50:20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. They meant it for evil, their action was evil, and yet God meant their evil action for good, because he had a good purpose in it. Notice how Joseph recognizes it was both his brothers and God, one in light of the other, with God being ultimate. In fact, earlier in Genesis 45.8, Joseph said, God has made me a father to Pharaoh, the lord of all his house, and the ruler of all his land of Egypt. God has made me this way. Joseph viewed his entire life situation as being completely under the control of God. Joseph didn't have an either-or mindset, as many, unfortunately, do. And we can't leave out the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the murder of the sinless Son of God. This was the greatest evil ever committed, and yet the Bible declares that the evil people involved in the crucifixion did precisely what God's hand and plan predestined to take place, as it says in Acts 4, 27 and 28. Notice the language being used? God's hand predestined it to take place. This is once again the action of God. The transcendent action of God is once again shown to include the sinful actions of creatures, and yet this never means that God's action is evil. God had a good purpose, the greatest purpose of all, in fact, in the murder of his son. He accomplished salvation for his people. And I can't help but briefly pause to address the really bad arguments I hear every time this verse is brought up. People always say, well, just because God determined one evil act doesn't mean he determined all evil acts. That's never been the point of bringing up this passage. The point is not that since God determined this one thing, he's determined all things. I have plenty of other ways of showing that God determines all things, as you've already clearly seen in this episode. The point is simple. Your false assumption that God either never determines evil actions, or that if he were to determine evil actions, it would make him evil as well, are obliterated. Those false assumptions are obliterated by a simple passage like this. If it can be shown that even one evil action was authored by God, then all we're pointing out is that there is nothing illogical about God being the author of evil actions. Another concept I'd like to address quickly is this concept of God giving and taking away. We've all heard it said, God gives and God takes away. Everything that we have was given to us by God, not just physical possessions, but even our health and our life. And he has the right to take it away at any time and for any reason and by any means. The story of Job is one of the most explicit examples of this truth. Job suffered multiple tragedies at the hands of Satan on the storyline level, who destroyed his property and killed his servants and his children. And yet, what was Job's response to this? Did Job assume that since God is good, he must have had nothing to do with all those quote-unquote bad things? Of course not. Just the opposite, in fact. In Job 1, verse 20, we read that Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. 
And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God gives, and God takes. Now it's obvious that how God gives and takes often includes the sinful actions of other creatures. Job said the Lord gives and takes away, even though on the immediate storyline level it was Satan doing those terrible things. But instead of blaming God, the next verse, verse 22, actually says, In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Notice how Job both recognizes God's role and yet does not blame God morally. I wish more Christians would take a page out of Job's book. Most Christians, rather than acknowledging God's role in all the bad stuff and yet not blaming him, instead falsely assume that if God played a role at all in any of the bad stuff, that he would be blameworthy and therefore he must not have played a role. When someone sins against you or harms you or wrongs you, the Bible tells you that God did that. And instead of having an emotional meltdown and allowing your false assumptions to drive you off the theological cliff, all you have to do is slow down and ask, but in what way did God do it? And why did he do it? Are you any different than Job? Whether it's Satan sinning against you or your next door neighbor, the same principle applies. God can be said to be doing it, and yet God is not to blame. The person sinning against you is. You have a choice to make. Either you can allow all your false assumptions and false ideas about what God would or wouldn't do, or about what God is allowed or not allowed to do. You can allow all those false assumptions to blind you to reality and use them as an excuse to shut your eyes to the clear biblical teaching that God as a sustainer of all things does all those things. Or you can submit to that clear biblical truth and try to properly understand it. The Bible says it's been granted you for the sake of Christ not only to believe but to suffer as well. As Christians, we often suffer at the hands of others. You need to recognize that God has a purpose in that suffering. He is sanctifying you and using those things to cause you to grow closer to him and more reliant upon him. And instead of trying to pretend that God had nothing to do with that sin against you because of your false assumptions, you should be recognizing that God had everything to do with that sin against you. Not as the one sinning, of course, but as the good God who sustains and works all things for the good of those who love him. Since this is true, that sin must have a purpose. We are to be thankful to God in all things, even in our sufferings. People seem to think that they are somehow protecting God's character, quote-unquote, when they refuse to go so far as to say that God did it, and they'd rather say that God, quote-unquote, allowed it. Once again, they're trying to ultimately, metaphysically, distance God from those things. But remember, when we're speaking in this ultimate context of God's metaphysical relationship to his creation, especially after everything we've covered, the idea of God allowing or permitting something to occur makes no sense. Think about it. Does it make any sense to say that God allows something to occur, which requires his very sustaining power, to occur? The very idea of permission or allowance once again implies that there is something that God is not in control of to begin with. And this goes for both sides, not just Calvinists. In this ultimate discussion, in which I've already pointed out that all Christians have God sustaining the existence and occurrence of sin, to say that God allowed that occurrence of sin or evil is as absurd as saying that God allowed himself to sustain sinners while they sin. And this is why for both sides of this debate, the idea of God allowing or permitting something only makes sense when you're speaking of God's interaction in time. We just covered the case of Job, and everyone loves to point out that God allowed Satan to do those things. And this is true on the storyline level. There was an interaction between God and Satan in heaven in which God allowed or gave permission to Satan to do those horrible things. And Satan did those horrible things on the storyline level. But never forget that even though God interacts in time from time to time, he is always outer acting as transcendent sustainer of all those things. So even though we recognize that God allowed Satan to do those things within creation, Job himself can boldly say that God did all those things as the transcendent God who was in control of it all. This is just another crystal clear case of it being both God and Satan, one ultimate and one storyline, rather than being a case of either God or Satan. If you were just to consider the storyline level by itself, either or makes perfect sense. Satan was doing those things, not God. But when considering God's role as transcendent sustainer, it's both, each and every single time. God's action 
being ultimate. Another common thing that I hear is that if God were the author of sin, then he'd be responsible for sin, and we just can't have that. But I immediately have to ask, responsible in what sense? If you simply mean responsible as in having something to do with, then that's true of anyone's view. God created all things and upholds all things, even the bad things, as we've already covered. But if you mean morally responsible, my first question is, who is God responsible to? Is there another God out there who created God and gave him laws? Of course not. God is the only true and truly autonomous being. Autonomous means a law unto yourself. God doesn't have any laws that were given to him, and therefore it is impossible for him to sin by definition. Sin is the breaking of laws. But on top of this, we've already addressed how God's actions are always morally good. Even when God, as a transcendent sustainer of all things, is said to quote-unquote do or work something on the storyline level, his intentions are always good and righteous. And we already covered earlier how everyone needs to ask themselves, is God doing a morally good thing when he sustains sinful creatures and sinful actions? All Christians are forced to recognize that God sustains sinners while they sin, and it ultimately could not be occurring apart from his power. He is in the ultimate position, in everyone's view, and I find the argument focusing on God's quote-unquote responsibility to be a very weak argument. And ironically, the non-Calvinist has a major double standard set up when they try to argue this way against Calvinists. They're going to usually say something like, God is morally responsible for sin in the Calvinist view, because in the Calvinist view, God causes sin. And if I were to cause something sinful, I would be morally responsible. Therefore, if God were to cause sin to occur, God would be morally responsible. Now let's just pretend to ignore for a moment, let's ignore the categorical difference I mentioned earlier between God's ultimate vertical causation of existence over against our horizontal causation within time. Let's just ignore that for a moment. Any attempt to judge God and, and fit him into humanistic categories and relationships is always going to blow up in your face. I can just as easily say to the non-Calvinist view that God is morally responsible for sin in your view because as a non-Calvinist you admit God allows sin which he could easily stop. Now if I were to allow a sinful action that I could easily stop, I would share in the moral responsibility of that sinful action. Therefore, if God were to allow sin to occur which he could stop, God must be morally responsible. Are you beginning to see the problem with this way of thinking? The reason these types of arguments against Calvinism always blow up in your face is because you've assumed that your view is somehow immune to the tough questions regarding God's relationship to sin and evil. Your view is not immune to these ultimate questions. And until you actually attempt to give an answer and address these issues from within your own view, you will continue to operate under the delusion that the Calvinists are the only ones that have these issues to deal with. Unfortunately, even those who have considered these things still prefer to appeal to mystery and pretend they don't have to give logical and biblical answers. Now, this is not a U2 fallacy here. This is a simple statement of fact. I don't have a problem with God being in ultimate control of these things, and neither should you, because there is no problem to begin with. I've given the answers, both scripturally and logically. God is in the transcendent position. He has no laws or rules that he needs to play by regarding how to conduct his creation. His causation and control is ultimate. It is the very ground of our being and existence. There is no one God answers to, no one to hold him responsible. God's actions are always good and always righteous, even when they include the storyline sinful actions of creatures. What we mean for evil, God means for good. Since the non-Calvinist refuses to accept the answers I've been putting forth, all they're left with is a failed and purely emotional argument and the unavoidable appeal to mystery. So I'd like to start to wrap this episode up with the final section addressing some of the most common passages in scripture raised against the idea of God being the author of sin. These are verses that people genuinely think are refuting the claims of Calvinists like myself who say that God plans, purposes, determines, and even by his sustaining causative power brings about all things, including sin and evil. But I want you to notice as we go through these passages that none of them are addressing God's ultimate relationship to his creation. They are all addressing God's relationship to sin and evil within creation, which of course is non-existent. 
After listening to this episode and all my arguments relating to God as sustainer, no one should come away thinking that what Calvinism is teaching is that God is somehow manifesting creation alongside those evil things, commanding people to do evil or forcing people to do evil. When you simply understand my consistent point that God is the sustainer of all things, these passages we're about to go through pose no problem for the Calvinists whatsoever. In fact, if these passages were actually teaching what those who use them think they are teaching with regards to God's metaphysical relationship to his creation, then it would directly contradict nearly every single passage I've brought up in this episode. So as Christians, we just need to ask ourselves, is there a contradiction, or is someone making false assumptions along the way? The first verse is 1 Corinthians 14.33, which says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Most of you may have heard this verse commonly quoted in the King James Version, which says that God is not the author of confusion. And people want to say, look here, you say God is the author of all things, but this verse says God is not the author of confusion, therefore look how easy it was to disprove you. But not so fast. The problem is that the word author isn't actually in the verse anywhere. If you look at the, any other mainline translation, you'll simply read that God is not of confusion or of disorder, but of peace. The next point is the context. The context is speaking of order within the church. As the verse says, God is not of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The point is, how do you tell a true church from a false one? Obviously, if you enter a church and there's all sorts of confusion and arguing and disorder, it probably isn't a church of God. That's all this verse is teaching. It's not speaking of God's ultimate metaphysical relationship to the occurrence of confusion or disorder within creation. And I simply repeat some of the verses I cited earlier. 2 Thessalonians 2.11, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false. Think there's a little bit of confusion involved there? I would say so. 1 Kings 22.23, Now therefore, behold, the Lord put his put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Once again, there's a little bit of confusion involved in a lying spirit as well. So no one is saying that God does these things by being manifest in creation, whispering lies or confusion into people's ears. Obviously, God uses storyline-level means to bring these things about. The point is that the biblical authors did not hesitate to ascribe these types of things to the ultimate control of God. This is enough to demonstrate the misuse of 1 Corinthians 14.33 against God being the author of sin. The next massively popular proof text that people raise against God being the author of sin is Jeremiah 19.5. We all know this one which says that they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in their fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Now, I quoted the ESV, and I just have to point out that the English word decree here is being used in the sense of speaking or giving a command. Decree can certainly be used in this way. The word decree here is not being used in the sense of plan, purpose, or determine, which is what Calvinists usually mean when they say things like God has decreed all things. This is proven by the fact that the Hebrew word debar literally means to speak or command. It is used over a thousand times in the Old Testament, always meaning speak or command, and every other English translation renders the word as God did not speak it. Again, this doesn't mean the ESV is wrong, it's just using a word that means to speak as a command from a place of authority, such as a king, which is obviously perfectly applicable to God. So the next time you hear someone quote the ESV rendering of this verse using the word decree and attempts to refute the Calvinist claim that God decrees all things, you know that they are abusing this text and playing word games. So notice that once this simple clarification is made, the verse is simply saying God did not command or speak that those evils should be done. This verse says nothing about God's metaphysical relationship to those things as sustainer of it all. It says nothing about whether God planned or determined for it to come to pass. At the end of the day, it must be understood in light of the foundational teaching that God upholds all things by his power, even the occurrence of those evil things. The next verse commonly used to argue against God being the author of sin is 1 John 2.16 which says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. This verse is used in attempts to refute the claim that God plans, purposes, determines, and even brings to pass by his sustaining power sinful things like pride and lust. But once again, what's the context? 
Is this verse speaking of God's metaphysical relationship to those things? Not at all. When the verse says that pride and lust are not from the Father, it's simply referring to God's commands. The previous verse said we are not to love the world. What does that mean? It's speaking of fallen sinful world, which is full of rebellion. Sin and rebellion are violations of the laws of God, which means that they are not coming from God in that sense. The next verse assures us that he who does the will of God, that is, obeys his commands, abides forever. So once again, the t context is the commands and the teachings of God. God does not command pride or lust. Those things do not come from him in that sense. But does the Bible say that such things come from God, at least in some sense? When Paul in Romans 11.36 says, From God and through God and to God are all things. From God are all things. What does that mean? Paul had just mentioned the sinful disobedience of Israel and even credits it to God by saying God has consigned them all to disobedience. And he concludes the chapter by saying, From God are all things. Obviously, Paul's use of from is a different context than John's. One speaks of coming from God ultimately, and the other speaks of coming from God within creation on the storyline level. Once again, if you refuse to acknowledge that distinction, then you're going to end up forcing the Bible into contradiction. Do you think the sinful disobedience of Israel included a little bit of pride and lust? Do you think when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, there was a little bit of pride involved there? As we have already covered, God says, I send them a strong delusion. I send them a lying spirit. I harden hearts, I blind eyes, so on and so forth. The Bible says all these things come, quote-unquote, from God in the ultimate sense, and none of this contradicts 1 John 2.16. Another passage we've all heard raised against Calvinism is found in James chapter 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Once again, this verse says nothing about whether or not God determines or causes temptation to occur. All it says that God is not the one doing the tempting. When the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, God was obviously causing a, t a temptation to occur. And yet it was Satan who was doing the tempting, not God. To say that if God causes temptation to occur, that that is identical to saying he is the one doing the tempting, is as absurd as saying that when you pray, God, lead me not into temptation, that you are somehow praying, God, please don't tempt me. Clearly absurd. Not to mention, once again, temptation itself cannot occur within creation unless God exerts a sustaining power so that it can occur. This text is addressing the outplay of temptation on the storyline level, which includes the tempter and the tempted. Saying that God is not the tempter is not the same thing as saying that God has nothing at all to do with the occurrence of the temptation. Now, these are just a few of the verses raised against the idea of God being the author of sin. There are plenty more that we could go over if we had time, but they all share the same misuse and corresponding answer to the three above and that is the failure to recognize God in the transcendent ultimate position. No one is saying that God is directly involved in the occurrence of sin on the storyline level. God is not the one sinning, the sinner is. Nor is he commanding sin, nor forcing man to sin against their will to commit sin. And none of these verses I have brought up in this episode have suggested anything of the sort. However, none of this will ever change the fact that nothing, including sin, could be occurring apart from the power of God ultimately causing it all to exist and occur. The Bible forces us to recognize God's role as the transcendent sustainer and worker of all things. So I really hope this episode has helped you guys better understand God's relationship to the occurrence of sin and evil within creation. This episode could have been a bit shorter if I had not quoted so many scriptures, but I think that on a topic as serious as this one, that I needed to exhaust the scriptures to demonstrate God's control over all categories of creation and from as many different angles as possible. I've received some light criticisms here and there by those who feel that my podcast is too much philosophy and not enough scripture, and I suppose looking back that I can understand why some might make that criticism. But I hope that after this episode it is clear that the Calvinist position regarding God's absolute control of all things, including sin and evil, and the concepts that I have consistently put forth throughout my episodes thus far, is not something Calvinists make up out of thin air. There is a perfectly biblical and logical understanding of God being the author of all things, including sin and evil, and there is no problem whatsoever. And I'll end with a brief summary.
God created all things and sustains all things. Sin is the occurrence of disobedience of God's law. Sin is not a thing with ontological existence, which means that God does not need to be metaphysically hands-off of anything in creation, even the occurrence of evil. If God takes the willful action of sustaining an evil occurrence, then that evil occurrence must have a good purpose. Judge has a good purpose not by what we would do if we were God, but judge has a good purpose because it's God's purpose. God's action to ultimately bring about the evil actions of his creatures does not make God's action evil. God's actions are always good by definition, and the biblical authors recognize this each and every single time they ascribed an occurrence of evil to the control of God. We also took several jabs at the doctrine of libertarian free will. We showed God's control of all categories of creation, including the human heart and mind. Never forget that we are a part of creation. We do not transcend it. There is no part of creation that is ever free from God. God brings the rain and the wind. God causes the grass to grow on the hills and the crops to grow for man. God creates both prosperity and calamity. When a disaster strikes a city, the Bible says God has done it. He makes rich and makes poor. God raises up kings and nations as well as destroys them. God makes every human being the way that they are, even when blind or deaf. Our hearts are in his hand like a stream of water. He directs it wherever he wills and for his purposes. He hardens hearts and softens hearts. He sends strong delusions and lying spirits. He means for good what we mean for evil. It is impossible to make sense out of these passages of scripture without recognizing the difference between how God acts as the transcendent sustainer and how God acts within time and creation. Never forget that even though God interacts from time to time within creation, he is always outer acting as the ultimate power which causes the continued existence and occurrence of all things. I hope that after all these things are shown clearly in the scripture that the more broad and overarching passages of God's control that we are all familiar with will become more clear and undeniable. After everything we've covered, every category of creation, is there any denying that God works all things after the counsel of his will? Is there any denying that from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever, or that in God all things consist and have their being at all times, or that we live and move and have our being in God at all times, or that God declares the end from the beginning, he has purposed it, and he will also do it, do it all. And finally, as Christians, we rest assured that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ, because nothing in creation is ever outside of God's control. I want to end by saying that if any of my fellow Calvinists disagree with anything I've put forth here, please kindly contact me so that we can have a discussion about it. Maybe you object to my admission of God being the author of sin. Maybe you object to my claim that God causes sin in the ultimate sense. Maybe you disagree with my view of heart hardening being both rather than either or. On a topic as serious as this, if I'm putting forth something that is false, or even if I'm stating a truth incorrectly or unclearly, please let me know. I'm happy to revise this episode and re-upload it. You can find the Consistent Calvinism podcast on all your favorite podcasting apps. You can subscribe to the Consistent Calvinism on YouTube and follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism at C Calvinism for more fun discussions there as well. You guys take it easy and remember to stay consistent, my friends.